This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. There are two words when said in conjunction with this program, The Other Side of Midnight, cause the enthusiasm level of an average listener to go from 9.5 to 12 on a scale of 1 to 10. There are two words that if you are thinking of going to sleep prior to the start of this program, will keep you awake at least for another hour. There are two words that inspire wonder and amazement. There are two words that immediately bring to mind the man with the best voice in all of radio and a man with more knowledge about space and astronomy than just about anyone I've spoken to on the radio. Those two words are... Dr. Sky. Dr. Sky, whose name is actually Steve Cates, is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in the world of space and astronomy. And he's kind enough to be a regular contributor to this program, as well as to a number of other great radio programs on the station and around the country. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. How are you? Well, Frank, good to be with you. Uh, Good morning, and it's great to be back on the other side of midnight for our next Dr. Sky Adventure. Thank you for having me. So uh, let's begin with the moon. Uh, There's so much talk of the moon. Uh, Apparently there's a super moon coming. There's an anniversary of the moon coming. But um, a lot of folks have been focused on why we really haven't been back to the moon since the 1970s. The Artemis Moon Rocket Project and the Artemis Moon Rocket Program is the first step in in turning that around. What's happening now with the Artemis Artemis Project? Well, Frank, many people may not know this because all the thunder and lightning, I guess, goes over to Elon Musk with the, you know, SpaceX projects and all of his heavy lift rockets, the super heavies and things. But NASA has been quietly working on a very interesting rocket. It's known as the Artemis Block One rocket or the Space Launch Systems rocket. What is this? It's a super heavy lift rocket, actually 365 feet tall, kind of reminiscent in many ways in size to the powerful Saturn V moon rocket. And later, hopefully, we'll talk about that 53rd anniversary of America landing on the moon with Apollo 11. Hard to believe, some uh, 53 years ago, back in 1969. But the rocket itself should at least be able to exhibit about 6.6 million pounds of thrust, maybe more. But it's powered by liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. And it's a combination of not only liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen in the booster rockets, but it also has some solid rocket motors. Remember, the space shuttle always had the two SRBs, one on each side. But the main power plant are four of these RS-25 engines that do give this particular rocket some extra oomph to get up into space. What's it all about? On top of it is a much larger, more modernized uh, secondary version of what we call the Apollo capsule. And if all goes well, the rocket was actually sitting on the launch pad doing some fuel-up tests, and they did successfully do that with a few minor things that they got to do. Then they moved it back with that giant robot, you know, the big crawler, which moves it about four miles, back into probably one of the largest buildings in the world. I don't know if you've ever seen the vehicle assembly building, where this this building itself was built to withstand hurricane force during the Apollo program. (laughs) But simply what they're going to do, Frank, is roll it out again, we hope, they hope, maybe sometime in August, to do the first of a series of long lunar missions unmanned this time, which is the beginning 
of America returning to the moon. You, you know, Steve, your phone's coming in a little shaky. I'm going to put you on hold uh, in the hopes that we can maybe reconnect with you and uh, and uh, get a, a better connection. Uh, but if people are just tuning in, we are joined for the hour by uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. And uh, he. we are going to take your calls about anything related to space and to astronomy. If you have questions, uh, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's one 800 Eight four eight nine two two two. As we referenced, we are coming up in just a couple of weeks on the fifty third anniversary of the Apollo eleven moon landing. Uh, so uh, there's certainly a lot of aspects of that that people think they know that they may not know. We'll get into that as well as uh, a few other areas as well. I think we have. Uh, I think we have Steve. Uh, Steve back. Steve, sorry about that. As you were saying. I apologize, Frank. Hopefully I'm sounding a little bit better. Much better. Thank you. But the goal here is actually, as this particular moon rocket is launched, unmanned as it is, this is hopefully what NASA wants to do, a man landing on the lunar surface in the South Pole by 2025. So we're hoping that that happens. But this particular rocket is very interesting. It's a very powerful rocket, and we'll be updating you as time goes on, and hopefully we'll get a real launch out of this, and they'll replicate what Apollo 8 did back in 1968, when three astronauts, of course, made that journey around the moon. Quite a fascinating story. Are you optimistic as someone that roots for space exploration to continue pushing boundaries? Are you optimistic that this will happen? I am, Frank. I think it's great. Obviously, the problem with the Apollo program is once we did this once or twice, the Americans and people around the world seemingly lost a lot of interest in this. Not everybody. People who like this particular subject will always be on the positive side. But what's interesting about this, as we continue, I'm hoping, yes, to answer your question, that we do continue on here to send humans, and this time females, to the surface of the moon. This is a goal, I think, for many reasons, that we have some great technologies that we can explore on the moon, including some potential fuels that we're in such desperation right now. If we could harvest, as many astronauts have said in the past, the helium-3 isotope on the surface of the moon and harvest it, it might be a gateway for us to learn how to use alternate energy sources and ones that have tremendous potential for power. Yeah, I know uh, Ralph Cramden, he certainly was always very interested in sending his <laughs> wife to the moon. So uh, I think more more women on the moon would certainly be a good thing. 800-848-9222. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can throughout the hour. Uh, Bill is in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Dr. Sky. Okay. Now, the periodic meteor showers, they have a radiant. Uh, yes. Perseids come from a place in uh, constellation Perseus. Now, if the radiant is like in the southern hemisphere, if it's in Crux, the Southern Cross, or Musk mm-hmm. of the Fly, can you right. see meteors in America? Probably not. And good morning, Bill. Thank you for the great questions. You obviously are tuned in and dialed in to this subject very well, as we've talked in the past. Radiance, like these meteor showers, as you mentioned, Perseids from the Perseus constellation, all these things like Orion, it's from Orion. But no, if your latitude, let's say you're listening to us anywhere in North America, wherever this radio show is heard across America, you obviously would not be able to see much of anything when these radiants are well below the horizon. Now, the southern hemisphere would suffer naturally, logically, that if the radiant of the Perseids, which is a high summer meteor shower in the northern hemisphere, if I was in Australia, I may have a difficulty seeing it. But way south, very close to the southern pole, if I was within, say, 70 or 80 degrees of, let's say, in, in Antarctica, 
it would be virtually difficult, if not impossible, to see northern radiance, just like it would be for these southern ones. 800-848-9222 on the subject of the moon. John in Freehold has a question. It's a question I think we've addressed before, but it's one that I get asked a great deal, so it probably makes sense to review again. And what's your question, John? Yeah, it's a... How you guys doing? It's a pleasure. It's always talking, Frank. Thanks. Nice good morning. Nice to be with you, John. Uh, good morning. So um, I, I just don't understand. If we were able to go to the moon in 1969 and in the 70s, the technology now is a million times better. Uh, I, I just don't get why we don't go there. It, it makes you feel like something's wrong with that or they don't want to go there. I don't think it matters that people uh, aren't interested in it. Well, John, no, you bring up a good point. It's been pretty much a financial thing. And we brought back some 840 pounds of moon rocks in all the Apollo programs. But the interesting fact is, I don't think there's a conspiracy, nor did you say that, about not wanting to go back to the moon. I think both John and I think Frank would probably agree with this, that I think one of the first things I would like to do is see even a robotic spacecraft land at the Apollo 11 designated site, where, of course, there's artifacts that are still there. And once and for all, Imagine that, guys, seeing in 4K or 8K video. Wouldn't that be amazing to at least return to those sites and put to rest? But I'm sure what? There'd be people out there that still would say the moon landing was faked. But I'm a big proponent of this. I think it's a great thing for technology. And wow, John, imagine the things that we're going to get from technology this time. The videos, the views, and the technology is just going to give us some really good answers as to how this whole universe was created. The moon holds a lot of those secrets. But in a nutshell, though, Steve, the the answer as best you understand it as to why. And we've had a lot of presidents that always talk about going back to the moon. I, I know Bush did in one state of the union. Yes. I think Obama did. And I, I thought and uh, Trump certainly was the administration that got the ball rolling on Artemis. Your understanding of why we haven't been back to the moon is because of diminished interest and diminished funding because well, yes, of diminished interest. Absolutely, Frank. And one of the main reasons was a lot of that money. Remember, there were going to be Apollo 18s and 19s and maybe even a 20. But the time at this particular time, the, the budget shifted. And that's something that Congress decided, of course, and handed it down to NASA. Most of that money during that period of time went over to what? The space shuttle program, mm. a very important program for us. But I think what happened then, a lot of that also went into the International Space Station and our original space stations in the sky that we obviously put up there. So a lot of that was due to funding. But I'm hoping, and I'm being pretty much optimistic, but also a realist in the economic world, that I, don't, I do not just think that NASA is going to do this. I think you're going to have to see privatizing of space and look at the strides that uh, – you know, we see from Elon Musk and SpaceX. So I think the future looks bright to return to the moon, if not just to do it, but for many other reasons that are technology to help improve life here on the Earth, believe it or not. Well, the moon is, uh, of course, the Earth's natural satellite. Speaking of satellites, a lot of attention was uh, was paid when we saw that um, the capstone satellite broke off from Earth's orbit, apparently now NASA has reestablished contact with this uh, with this satellite. What exactly happened here? What caused what is the capstone satellite? What caused it to break away from Earth's orbit and what's happening now? Well, here's the interesting short story. Rocket Labs, a company, launched a rocket called Electron. And inside that rocket is a little payload with another little rocket called uh, Photon. 
And that particular rocket pushed out this little tiny uh, space probe, if you want to call it, like a little micro satellite. It weighs 55 pounds. But the purpose of Capstone is very interesting. It is going to explore, this sounds very technical, and I'll explain it, a rectilinear lunar halo orbit. What is that in simple language? It's a very specialized orbit that goes polar to polar around the moon. What's all this for? The object, the little capstone, will probably get there into that orbit sometime in November. It's taking its time. On July 4th, the, you know, the ground commanders and the people running this show with NASA and up in Colorado, they temporarily lost control or contact, I should say, not necessarily control. I don't know what they did, but they've reestablished, as you said, com you know, communications and contact with Capstone. But what's so important about this particular object, it's going to pave the way for the orbit. They want to make sure that this orbit works, and it's for many reasons for putting up what we call the Lunar Gateway Space Station. Now, if most folks think we just have a space station around the Earth, they're right. We're going to have a space station around the orbit of the moon, and it needs to work in that rectilinear halo orbit. It's a very interesting orbit because the spacecraft or this, this particular uh, space station will come down to a low point in its orbit, about 935 miles above the Earth, and swing out in the seven-day orbit to about 43,000 miles. And the whole purpose of that is they will have on board, this is the dream boat, they will have robots, landing craft, and it'll be the habitation module for maybe four or five astronauts as they then plan their descent to the surface of the moon. A very smart thing to do, and that's a very exploratory thing because if we're ever going to go to Mars, we do not just want to send a rocket there, land, and hopefully we can get back. We want to have a predestined space station, let's say around Mars, as the lifeboat, if you're that far away. And I think this is a great concept. Great things are about to happen, hmm. Frank. No, it's certainly, I'm optimistic. We're going to continue with your calls in a moment. Uh, Steve Cates is here, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You have questions, you can call us at 800-848-9222. If you want to read more of uh, Dr. Sky's observations on what's happening in the night sky, you could check out the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're talking with one of our favorite guests, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and television broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Uh, Steve, we are coming up in just a couple of weeks on the 53rd anniversary of Apollo 11. Not long ago, in the grand scheme of things, in, in American textbooks in school were saying that it was impossible to travel yeah. to the moon. It was considered the stuff of science fiction. Uh, these days, it's uh, considered a seminal, not only achievement for humankind, but of the United States and America. And whenever anything is uh, sought to get done, that's a big deal that uh, has to do with a government 
partnership with the private sector, it's always referred to as a moonshot because of the success that uh, the private sector and the public sector had in making that happen in 1969. Uh, As we go into July uh, 20th, I think it was, as we go into July 20th, what should folks keep in mind about what a remarkable human achievement that was? Well, if we're all old enough, we know where we were when we watched it. I was 13 years of age back in the New York area. And I remember watching it on my parents' little black and white television that had a little problem with the horizontal control. And in those days, I had to ask permission to stay up because the moon the moonwalk took place Eastern time well after 10 p.m. at night. But what I think people need to remember, there's some little-known facts about this particular mission with these three heroes the United States sent to the moon, long stories about how they got to be selected, longer stories about who was to be first to walk out of the lunar module. But here's some interesting trivia And I think it is also symbolic to remember the mission. Many people don't realize that seven minutes after Neil Armstrong stepped onto the lunar surface back in July 1969, he collected a small sample of lunar material and safely tucked it into his spacesuit. Why? Just in case they had to abort if something were to go wrong, because that was virgin territory then. They didn't even realize that they might even sink. They didn't know. They might even sink into the ground like quicksand. So he did that just so that we would have something if they had to abort right away. But successfully, they were on the moon for well over 21 and a half hours, which is one of the shortest durations of any of the lunar walk, you know, the lunar missions. Well, I'm sorry, give me the length of time again. 21 and a half hours. Uh-huh. So they spent a total of 21 and a half hours, which is one of the shortest times that they've ever had of any of those Apollo missions. But they brought back, and look at this, 47 pounds of moon rocks. And they had some problems because they had a little conveyor system that they really hadn't tested out on the moon until they're there, which you would kind of like a clothesline, hook the bags up and try to move them up into the lunar module. That didn't work too good, so they had to do it by hand. Imagine going up and down that ladder, but you're in one-sixth gravity. But when they left, this is also interesting from the trivia file, they tossed the lunar backpacks out, of course. They had their own pressure suits on inside. And how about this? An empty Hasselblad camera, those beautiful medium format cameras that people use today. There's probably, of course, one still on the moon. Then they blasted off the moon, but they left some memorial artifacts to those that perished, like the Apollo 1 mission. But here's something even more interesting. When Aldrin got back into the uh, lunar module by accident, and it was so bulky in there, he hit the ascent circuit breaker and actually broke the switch off. Now, that was the only way to get off the moon. <laughs> because you had to flip the switch. So this is a true story, and it's been verified. He's said it many times. The day was saved, or the night, by him using a felt-tip pen and pushing that into that hole, and the rest is history. They blasted off the surface of the moon, because we all know what would have happened if they didn't. And then, as they were going up on the ascent part of the, uh, you know, leaving the moon, Aldrin claimed to see the American flag sadly topple over from the exhaust blast. So wouldn't it be amazing to go back to this lunar site and collect some of those amazing artifacts? But without a doubt, six, seven hundred million people, maybe upwards of a billion people, watch the moonwalk on a very crude black and white type television system. Just an amazing feat. And I never met Neil Armstrong. I had an opportunity to do it. I mean, I'm sure there's many listeners out there that have. But I've made it part of my Dr. Sky, you know, interviews as a journalist to interview so many of the moonwalkers over the past 20 years. And some of those stories, Frank, are just totally amazing. Um, Did you see the film First Man that came out a few years ago about the moonwalk? And and if you did, what were your impressions of it? 
Well, I thought it was well done. And actually, it comes from Mr. Hansen's book that the Auburn professor, Neil Armstrong, was very protective of who he wanted to do his mm-hmm. biography. So Mr. Hansen did. But I thought it was actually very good. I mean, it's a little bit Hollywood poetic, as they say. But the saddest part, I think, in the whole movie is actually the story of how Neil Armstrong lost his little baby daughter. Mm. She died. And that was something that really affected him. But imagine all the pressure of having to handle everything that you'd have to do on the long flight to the moon to be the commander and to make sure that all the things went as best as possible. And they were very fortunate that uh, they did have success on this particular mission, because even the slightest thing, Frank, could push this uh, into darkness. Or, as President Nixon had on his desk, in the event that they couldn't return, there was also another story, a live television broadcast, of the three three heroes that, of course, went to the two heroes on the surface of the moon. And uh, Michael Collins would have, of course, had to go back to Earth as a single rider in the Apollo command module. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Peter in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Great. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. I just wanted to talk about the budget that I've heard over the years uh, that NASA, even Carl Sagan, was kind of critical of NASA and the way they spent their money, that Mm -hmm. they spent two-thirds of their budget on manned space, uh, well, not space, on manned space missions, but uh, space exploration was always done by unmanned uh, m- machines, and that people saw that NASA, and he even said, how, how many times are you going to circle the Earth in a space shuttle and call it space right. exploration? And to, uh, to, to get to my point is, um, did a lot of people look at NASA and say, we are wasting money by giving money to this uh, organization? Well, a lot of people have. I mean, it's always been a fight. And if you look at it, I don't know the exact numbers. I should. But Bill Nelson, who, of course, heads NASA right now, would know the best answer. It's public knowledge, Peter, how much NASA gets. But it is a very tiny little budget that they really have. But let's go on to what you just mentioned. I mean, my time, I had an opportunity, like a few, to meet Carl Sagan. And I didn't ask him this question, but I was so, you know, it was just a college kid then. But the point is, you're right. He had also talked about and saying maybe we could better spend our money with the technology of robotic spacecraft and get more bang for the buck. So there is an argument there that some people could level, because look at the great technology that's come from the most amazing spacecraft series. Look at the Voyager spacecraft. They're just powering down like I think it's Voyager 1 or 2, or maybe both. They've been out there since 1977, and they also have paid their way many times over in exploration. So there might be a little faction that fights in between the NASA budget there or different sides of the fence, Some would say, let's do more manned exploration, while others might say, let's do more robotic exploration. And I think we're going to find out, technically, to to go to your point there, finally, that I think it's going to be more of the robotic exploration that's obviously going to take over because of the great leaps in technology. It can be done cheaper than than manned missions to anything. Thank you, Peter. 800-848-9222. Tony's in Florida. Hello there, Tony. Hi, Frank. Hi, Mr. Sky. Hi there, Tony. Hi, I have a question. I watched the first two moon landings in real time. Yes. And in the early 80s, maybe, maybe 1980, I read an article in a newspaper that said that they weren't going to do any more landings on the moon because when the rocket took off, it was so much force and the moon was so small, it caused it to literally shake. And they were afraid 
that it would either do something to the moon or knock it out of its orbit or whatever. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. I mean, but you're onto something. I just want to mention those first two launches. Apollo 11, as we know, went smoothly and launched into space. But the problem, there was no effect that the Apollo rockets had on the moon. No, that's not something that's accurate from what I know. But something happened with Apollo 12 that's quite interesting, and it may have canceled the entire program, other than the loss of the Apollo 1 astronauts that perished in the fire back in 1967. What happened, Tony, is that Apollo 12, when it launched, Al Bean, I actually asked him this question, who was in there with Pete Conrad, as they ascended, they, they literally launched through a thunderstorm. Go figure. So what happened is the Apollo Saturn V got hit by lightning, not once, but twice. And imagine as you're driving your vehicle and you have all the lights and all the dashboard stuff on, it's so much more critical. Imagine what would happen if you're seeing in a spacecraft. Everything went dry and black. And if it wasn't for somebody on board there, they actually knew that they had a switch, a certain switch on in a certain way. It actually worked, and Apollo 12 got to the moon. But none of the Apollo rockets or anything like that caused, as far as I know, any changes in the orbit of the moon by any chance. They're so small compared to the size of the moon. We're going to continue with your calls and your questions for Dr. Sky in just a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight talking with Dr. Sky. You can check out his blog at ktar.com. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. If you are just tuning in, my guest for the hour is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, He has a tremendous amount of knowledge and a great deal of passion when it comes to what's in the night sky, when it comes to space and the and astronomy. We've been answering as many of your questions as we as we can. We're going to continue to do that in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two, two. Uh, Steve, let me ask you, we've heard a great deal about this James Webb telescope. Apparently, it's going to be beaming some very impressive images back to Earth. It may have already begun. What's the latest with this James Webb telescope? Well, the good and the bad. The good is, I believe it's the 12th of July. We're going to see if the news conference hasn't happened already. The first solidified images from this amazing spacecraft. Remember, these 18 hexagonal gold-plated mirrors are going to peer back in time if we believe that the universe was created by an expansion 13.8 billion years ago. We're set to see some amazing images. But remember also, it sits at a position called one of the Lagrange points. They call it L2. Why is this important? It's about a million miles away from the Earth. So there's a little bit of a lag time when the signals come in, but that's the least of the concerns. But on the other side, the not-so-great side, is that the object was actually hit, the James Webb Telescope, one of its mirrors, 
was hit by a small, as they called it, micrometeor. And that's interesting because you can tell that there's no area that's a safe place in space for anything, especially when it's in the confines of the solar system. But on the positive, which is really the big news, wow, I'm ready, everybody else, right, Frank, to get to see some images. Is this particular telescope, remember, it doesn't look in the white light that we see visual light. It primarily looks in infrared. So the sensitivity of those mirrors, it's, they're gold-plated because it has more of an absorption for infrared. But I'm excited, like everybody, don't you think? This is going to be amazing. As we peer back, maybe as early as, who knows, maybe 380,000 years after the expansion, when something really interesting happened, we call this like, as if you took an egg and you fried it in your pan in the, in, you know, in, in the, on the stove, and it would actually singe itself and sear itself. You know, you couldn't, you'd have to scrape the thing off. Something happened in the universe which heated up and changed the dynamics of the entire universe. So we're actually hopefully going to get to see some images, maybe even before stars and galaxies were formed or just about that time. So get set. I believe it's July 12th for uh, hopeful downloads and some images. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Only five days away, 800-848-9222. John is in Newburgh. Hello, John. Hi. Frank and uh, Dr. Sky, that was actually uh, the uh, James Webb Telescope was actually what I called in to uh, speak about. Um, yes, sir. I just wanted to know as far as uh, comparing it to what we had going on with the Hubble, mm -hmm. I know there's been so much money invested into the James Webb, and I know I read a whole article that it took months even to open up the mirrors in order so it would have the, the proper right. – uh, would be able to receive the proper light to receive the images. So – I did hear you say that we're going to be able to look back to the beginning, uh, to possibly the beginning of the universe to see what was going yes. on back then. Mm -hmm. Are we also going to be able to see potentially anything else? I mean, what's the, what's the major benefit of the James Webb over the Hubble? Are we going to be able to see more galaxies? Are we going to be able to see bigger pictures of galaxies? Is there oh, anything yeah. Other? John, you answered it. It's got much better light gathering or energy gathering capability because, remember, the Hubble Space Telescope, which, by the way, we can't talk bad about it. It's done a great job. It's only a 94-inch mirror and only mm. is still pretty big. Let's go back 20 years and would go, wow, 94-inch mirror. But with the James Webb, you have a, a surface area collective of about 21 feet in diameter. So what's that going to do? Like in the basic telescopes that we talk about, if you have a mirrored telescope of six inches, that'll pick up a fairly decent amount of things in the night sky. But if you have a 16-inch mirror, or let's say a 24, you just go and expand the size of that mirror. It has more light or energy-gathering capability. So, oh, yeah, this is going to give us some amazing images that we've never seen before. And, uh, wow. John, stay tuned to your television and computer because I think you're going to be impressed. That's my pretty yeah, much prediction. I'll are we talking about more uh, potentially being able to identify more exoplanets and Earth-like planets? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Planet? Absolutely. And that's what they're going to be studying. And, you know, maybe we'll find the first, quote, habitable exoplanet. But I'm interested. If I had so maybe a day, I don't know, everybody could pick what they would do with it. And by the way, the time on the James Webb Telescope was probably so, you know, booked up. with You have to get this committee to approve it. What would I do if I had it? I'd be happy to hear what other people would do, but I'd be looking at a star system called TRAPPIST-1 because it happens to have a miniature solar system of about eight so-called exoplanets. Wow. And they're all at a certain distance that we call a habitable zone, or most of them, and that might be a place. Imagine that, firing that baby up on that and saying, wow, I found the third one, no, no pun intended, like the third planet from the sun, <laughs> the Earth. Imagine if we found something like that. But sadly, 
we have found exoplanets, right, John? But the problematic thing is most of them look like they're non-habitable. Even the one water planet that we found, it's in the wrong position to have life as we know it. But right, who are we to say what life should be? 800-848-9222. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Dr. Scott. Yes, excuse Good morning. my voice. I'm recovering from COVID. Um, well, God bless you. I, I hope you'll be okay. I, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I had called before, but I just want to reiterate, I just don't know why NASA hasn't put any emphasis on the two moons of um, Mars. They're the two closest moons beyond mm-hmm. our own, and they could they could do a sample return mission from either one and sure. use them as observatories. I, I, I don't hear anything about, you know, exploring them, so just wanted to get your take on that. Well, Don, you're very much intuitive on this because I, like my, I like, you know, many people, myself included, would love to see some kind of sampling mission, but it all comes down to a budgetary thing. And I think Mars yeah. is the new, the new Cold War race like we had a space race. Who's going to get there first? Chinese have done amazing things with robots. Musk wants to yes. be the first, you know, people. But here's something interesting, not, not to go back in history, but it's important. The two moons of Mars called Deimos and Phobos, the legendary horses that drove Mars in his chariot, known as Panic and Fear. They were discovered in August of 1877 at the Naval Observatory, where the vice president lives. A very large telescope, a classic Clark refractor, Asaph Hall discovered them on a foggy night in the Washington area during the humidity of of summer then. But what's interesting about them is that they're strange objects. Phobos looks like it was a captured moon. And some say, (laughs) and this goes way off the charts, Who knows? Maybe some sort of extraterrestrial craft of some kind. I don't necessarily believe it, but I can just tell you they better do it soon because one day in the astronomical future, these objects will actually come and cascade into the planet Mars, and there'll be no more Deimos and Phobos. But they're fascinating. And finally, I love the history thing. Gulliver's Travels, that book, that particular novel, you know, the story of Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift wrote this book about 100 or so years before the discovery of the satellites of Mars. But in the book, he actually, go figure, describes the exact size and dimension and distance that two hypothetical objects that orbit Mars are. Wow, maybe that guy had a time capsule, but isn't that a great coincidence? (laughs) That's incredible. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. That's wild. 800-848-9222. Speaking of uh, things that we find in space, an interesting discovery – uh, a discover, and I am somebody that probably drinks uh, a few too many Negronis uh, during my summer weekends. But so I was particularly interested in the news that alcohol molecules have been found in space. Uh, what does this mean? Could this bring down the price of bourbon at all? Well, it might bring the price of gasoline down because here we go, Frank. Your largest alcohol molecule has been found in space. Now, people are probably wondering, wait a minute, is that the stuff like that's in beer or wine? Well, it's the same kind of thing, but here's the, here's the scoop on this. As we had many people on the 4th of July consuming alcohol, I thought of an important story. The largest group of molecular alcohol has been detected near a star known as Sagittarius B2. What's that? It's a star close to the galactic center, but it's in the form of something called propanol and one that we probably recognize, isopropanol. Now, wait a minute, folks. Isn't that what's in hand sanitizer? Well, in a different molecular or atomic state. But it's amazing to know that these molecular clouds do exist in space. And guess what? Among other molecular clouds, 
the universe is filled with, yes, I'm going to say it twice, not just carbon dioxide, but carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide. So isn't this amazing? We have alcohol molecules floating around in space, but not the kind that you could sit at the table and go, pour me another. Mm. They're in a different state that would almost be uh, kind of bizarre if I could even figure out how to get them to a table. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a b- exciting, but also uh, a bummer. 800-848-9222. We're continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a bit. Uh, you want to check out his blog, you can do so at ktar.com, the Dr. Sky blog. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We'll continue straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. of midnight talking with steve cates aka dr sky about all things space uh steve anything uh, that we should be looking forward uh, to seeing in the night sky soon whether we're going to go the telescope route the binoculars route or just the naked eye anything that excites you absolutely here we go if the listeners go out there all across the country where the show is heard and proudly so if you go out on this particular evening let's say thursday evening as you're listening Take a look at the moon, and just to the lower right, you'll see a star with the naked eye, even though the moon is now past first quarter. Why am I talking about this star, and what is it? It's a star called Spica. It's in the constellation Virgo. And as we celebrate or mark the 246th anniversary of America, just know that this particular star, strange as it is, the star is made up of two blue stars very close together that are egg-shaped because the gravity tugs on them. You can't see that because it's far away. Why am I saying this? The same time the Declaration of Independence was signed and the ink was still wet, there about, plus or minus, you know, a little variance here, the light that you see of the star Spica left when that declaration was signed and just got here now, 246-plus light years away, telling us once again that the sky is a gigantic time machine. For those of you with binoculars and telescopes, a small comet known as C-2017K2, pan stars, a lot to say, is actually a binocular and telescope object, but I'd do it soon before the moonlight interferes. That comet, Frank, was one of the largest comets discovered so far away from the sun, maybe a nucleus of 10 miles in diameter. It may brighten up as we go through the month. And don't forget, as we move on to the 13th, another of the great supermoons that we have in our sky, this one appropriately named across the nation, as you have the particular season of summer, the full super thunder moon. That's great. And from the history file, real quick, we mark the 114th anniversary of one of the greatest explosions of an object or something that came from space over northern Siberia called the Tunguska event. Allegedly, a six or seven hundred foot in diameter asteroid. The old theory was that it exploded over northern Siberia and that it vaporized on impact and it blew out trees the size of the state of Rhode Island. And some animals died and a few people died. But now the latest theory is the object may have come down in a shallow orbit, 
And the compression wave, the big shock wave, was that of about a 12, and I say it right, a 12 megaton type of a fireball, like a nuclear fireball, and that the object didn't hit the Earth at all because there's no crater, and it skipped out into space. But if it happened 30 minutes earlier, according to many in the reliable astronomy and celestial mechanics area, guess what? This object would have happened over London, England. Lucky for us, but sad for those in the past. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in Queens, who has been patiently holding. Hello, Joe. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Uh, Good morning. Two, two things I want to bring up. One is yes, the rockets that came back, you know, some of them were put in Flushing Meadow Park as a museum. Did right. they look at those and see a before and after? That You know, and that would be my first question. And also, when you use the astronomical unit, uh, you know, which is supposedly the distance from the Earth to the sun, and now they say as of today, Pluto's 34.5 mm-hmm. uh, astronomical units from the sun. Is that used a lot? Is that kind of in use, that whole concept? Oh, yeah. I'll start with the second part, uh, Joe. You're right. Astronomical unit, 92 dot, dot, dot million miles away, that's used as a measuring benchmark. But what's interesting, and go off on a tangent here, but maybe not, the Earth right now is farthest from the sun. We're at a position called aphelion at 94.509 million miles away. So we use the AU unit to still measure what distance out into space. But going back to your first part about spacecraft, all the spacecraft that have come back, they've examined them, you know, tooth and nail. They've looked over every square inch of these things to see what happens. And the biggest damage that comes from any spacecraft coming back, most people know this, but I'll just add, add a little more spice to it, is that the great heat that is, you know, expended on these objects when they come through the atmosphere, it's easy maybe to get up to space, though that's difficult to some. It's even more challenging to come back because you will burn up. And even if you were an astronaut just floating out in space, you would eventually decay your own orbit and you'd meet a fiery end to your life. So they've studied these very closely. And the most important part of these is how do you protect the astronauts, cosmonauts, or tikonauts from the impending doom that would happen if you didn't have the proper heat shielding? So, so far, those technologies have proved to be pretty good. Let me squeeze in at least one more call here. Denise is on Long Island. Hello, Denise. Hi, Frank and uh, Dr. Skye. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank Dr. you. Skye, I just wanted to give um, recognition and a little memorabilia. Uh, my lifetime partner was a part of the landing on the moon. He was in top wow. management at the time. He awesome. lived the history um, yeah, it was pretty awesome at that time because the technology didn't exist, but the exactly. perseverance and the belief that nothing could stop them from getting on the moon. Being right. at the Cape, having tragic things happen when the astronauts had, you know, that horrific fire on the pad and there was yeah. a lockdown on the Cape. Horrible. I mean, he worked unbelievable hours. Everybody did. And I am so very proud of him. And I can remember going, even having the ability of being in the mock-up of the limb. And uh, there were memories at that time where I can remember Apollo 13, where Steve Kranz even said, and I'm going to allow Steve to respond, Denise, because we only have about 40 seconds here. Uh, Steve, uh, anything yes. you want to add in closing? Well, Denise, blessings on your partner. As we talk about these great space heroes, thank you for adding that to this conversation. 
Frank, it's a privilege and honor to be back on the other side of midnight with you as we conclude this Dr. Sky adventure. But thank you. And if people want to get in touch with you, if they have questions via email, how can they reach you? Use this email, Show at gmail.com. That's drskyshow at gmail.com. I'd be happy to respond. All right. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk about grandparents and dinner, two of my favorite things. Until then, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, it's interesting. My wife, uh, she's a journalist as well. She has a really good eye for talk topics and a really good eye for stories that I'm going to like. And it turns out a lot of the stories that she ends up being interested in are pretty interesting. And a lot of times they're stories that I would not have seen but for her calling attention to them. So I'm going through my email when I woke up yesterday afternoon. And she said to me the following. She sends me a link to an article, and she says, I don't know why, but this really resonated me. Well, excuse me, resonated with me. And she sends me a link to the article, and then I'll tell you her comments in just a second. But first, let me share with you this um, piece that she sent me. It's from the Washington Post. And it's a column by uh, Megan Leahy. Megan Leahy essentially writes a column about parenting where she's the mother of three daughters and the author of Parenting Outside the Lines. She holds uh, a bachelor's degree in English, secondary education, master's degree in social counseling. She's a certified parent coach. And what she does is she has a column where she answers parenting questions. Simple as that. So, I'm going to read you the question that was asked of her. I'm going to give you my take on it, which is pretty close to my wife's take. And then I'm going to share with you the answer that Megan Leahy gave, which is pretty close to where both of us come down on this. I'm curious if the callers feel differently because I am going to ask you to call. But first, I want you to hear the letter. Question. My 14-year-old grandson is an only child. He's kind, loyal, and easygoing, and children gravitate towards him. He's on his own after school. I live and his parents work nearby. It's not uncommon for him to have four or five kids in his room four to five days a week. On school days... They arrive on the after-school bus and stay until 8.30 to 9 p.m. when his parents get home from work. They often stay later on the weekends. They're respectful, well-behaved kids. Here's my dilemma. When dinner time rolls around, I want to provide food for my grandson, but neither I 
nor his parents can afford to feed all of his friends night after night. At the start of the school year, I made food for everybody, but it got too expensive and I started to feel resentful. Do their parents give any thought to who is feeding their children? They have never offered to feed the group. I believe that if my grandchild is at their houses at mealtime, he is included, but that's not where they hang out. They want to hang out at his house. I shared my feelings with my grandson. He understands, but he's not sure what to do. I coached him. The next time everybody's hungry, ask one of the twins who seem to be there at dinner time every Friday night to call their parents to order pizza for the group. I want to say that after each of their parents has bought dinner for the group, then I will buy dinner again. But I don't know how realistic that is. We don't know what to do. So what would you tell this lady? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, whether you are none of those things. You clearly had a parent and a grandparent. What would you tell this lady? What's the best way for her to handle this? And what would you tell this kid? Because, you know, you can understand where she's coming from. She wants to make sure her grandson is well provided for. Uh, And the kids all seem nice. But she doesn't want to go broke providing food for this group of six or seven children. What do you do? 800-848-9222. I'm going to read you what Megan Leahy's response was. I'm going to share with you my wife's response, and then I'm going to give you my take. Let me tell you what's coming up on the program uh, thus far. At 3.30, we're going to uh, do the AC report, okay? We're still calling it the AC report, even though now we're airing in Nevada as well, because the truth is, WABC, our flagship in New York, is such a booming signal. You could hear that in 38 states to begin with. It didn't make a whole lot of sense for me to call it the AC report, even when we were just on in WABC. So it's not as if we're all of a sudden we're on in Nevada. Also, now now we're going to stop calling it the AC report. No, you could buy Philadelphia cream cheese anywhere in the country. You could buy Arizona iced tea, which I still think is just made in New York. Anywhere in the country. They still call it Arizona iced tea. You could buy, um, you know, New York style pizza anywhere. You know, we once in a while will order pizza from a place that's Detroit style pizza. You don't change the name to suit the city that you're serving. So uh, I am still going to call it the AC report until John Katzmatidis tells me to change. <laughs> he's the he's the authority that uh, that I certainly listen to. But until that uh, call comes, then we're sticking with the AC report. Coming up at 4.30 Eastern, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade, uh, the star of the Fox News Channel, who you could see nightly on, uh, or excuse me, every morning on uh, Fox and Friends. And then he also has a primetime show he's been doing on the weekend. He also do, does a show on Fox Nation. He's also a best-selling author, and he has a nationally syndicated radio show on top of that. The guy might be the hardest-working person in all of media. I'm not saying that to stroke him. I don't, I don't need to stroke him. He is uh, really an impressive individual, so I'm looking forward to uh, catching up with him on the news of the day. But what's the answer to this question of Why do I have to feed all of my grandson's friends? What would you tell this lady? 
800-848-9222. Let me read you Megan Leahy's response, and then I'll tell you where my wife and I came down on this. She said, Megan Leahy, uh, Washington Post, I'm going to link to it, by the way, in case you want to read the whole thing and not rely just on my reading of this. Uh, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash moranofan. That's uh, facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. This is what she said. I've been revisiting the book Hunt, Gather, Parent by Michelin Duclef. In it, there's a section where she lives with a Tanzanian tribe called the Hadzabi. This tribe is known for its use of aloe parenting with the Greek root aloe meaning other. The mother and fathers, as well as the adults in the tribe, share the responsibilities of parenting. One of the details I found special was that when a Hadzabi child wanders off, one of the adults follows the child at a safe distance to ensure the child is safe. The child never knows. I thought of this tribe when I read your letter, because whether you know it, you are allo-parenting these teens. You are providing them with a safe place to be and a meal, and this is deeply nourishing on many levels. I feel your resentment loud and clear. Quote, do their parents give any thought to who is feeding their children? Close quote. They have never offered to feed the group. I don't blame you. This is discouraging. Feeding multiple teens is no small thing. Your grocery bills can quickly rise and ordering pizza can become expensive. It is easy to feel taken advantage of when the children don't pitch in and no one is thanking you. So what should you do? First, if you can, I would switch your perspective from it being a burden to house and feed these kids to it being a chance to keep them safe and fed. There are many shenanigans that teens can get into if left to their own devices, and we don't know what is happening at the homes of these children. For all we know, being with your grandson could be a refuge from emotional, sexual, and physical abuse. I don't want to guilt you into spending your life savings on food. It is just a subtle shift in understanding what you're providing. Second, address the practical issues of food. I would find affordable recipes, spaghetti and meatballs, chili, soup. I would put those teens to work by chopping, mixing, uh, boiling, you name it. 14-year-olds can be excellent chefs, and it could be quick work if they do it together. Task them with finding the highest value dinners that are still delicious and nutritious. Then get them involved, thus relieving yourself of the burden. They should also be helping with the dishes. Ten hands can get a lot of work done quickly. Third, Take a hard look at your expenses. Money needs are real. So if we remove the takeout, do the numbers start to look a little better? If not, send a text to the other parents saying, quote, I love the kids being here and I'm happy to continue to feed them every night, but they have teen appetites and I'm needing about $20 per kid for the month. Here's my Venmo. I'll speak for myself here. If I receive that text, I would profusely thank the parents for feeding my child, and immediately send the money, plus some. Here's a caveat. If you think one of the teens has a parent who is angry or abusive or is in a tougher economic place than you, I would approach this carefully or in another way. For instance, can another family provide food? Think carefully before sending this text because it could bring more trouble than it's worth. Finally, you're allowed to declare that they have to go home and eat at their own houses on certain nights. Announce to the group, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays are eat-at-my-house nights. If it's Tuesday or Thursday, you have to go at 7 p.m. You're never obligated to feed anyone, 
But try to see this as a short time in your grandparenting life. You're creating wonderful memories for your grandson, and he'll remember this generosity for years to come. What do you make of that advice? And what would you? What advice would you give if this question was posed to you? One eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. I'll tell you what my wife sent me. Uh, she said the following. She said, "I don't know why, but this really resonated with me. I get the money issue, but like the columnist wrote." Ditch the takeout and opt for inexpensive meals like spaghetti. I'd love it if when Carmine was older, Carmine is our, our son who's only seven months old. He has a, a reasonable appetite most most days. I'd love it if when Carmine was older, he brought his friends over all the time. That means he feels safe and comfortable at home and wants to be here. And I, I got to tell you, I am pretty much where my wife is and where the columnist is. I um I don't know that I would handle it the way the grandmother coached her grandson to handle it. She told the grandson um you know the next time everybody's hungry ask one of the twins who seem to be there at dinner time every Friday night to call their parents to order pizza for the group. Um I don't know. I I want when she goes and says I want to say that after each of their parents has bought dinner for the group then I'll buy dinner again, but I don't know how realistic that is. I really think that that Rachel, my wife is Rachel, and Megan Levy, the columnist, are exactly right here. There are a lot of low-cost meals that you can make in bulk. Uh, spaghetti happens to be one. Meatloaf is another. There's another. There's a bunch of other things. You don't have to spend forty or fifty dollars on pizza uh, every week. There are a lot of ways that you can make this inexpensive. And as the columnist said, if money is an issue. I mean, it's no big deal to ask these uh, children's parents to pitch in once in a while financially. I would not um, put make the grandson feel bad for wanting to have his friends over at all. I, and when I was a, a teenager, my, my all my parents, but especially my mother, my mother was uh, very welcoming to any of uh, any of our any of my friends that wanted to come over and uh, she would uh, never think twice about uh, about feeding as many of them as happen to be over and i think uh, i think i would be the same way as a parent i'd love to hear your view 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 i'm trying to you know again i get where the grandmother is coming from here and i feel bad that uh, she was trying to do the right thing. It seems like everybody's coming from a good place. The grandmother's coming from a good place. Uh, the grandson is coming from a good place. And I really empathize with the grandson here because for a long time uh, I was an only child and I'm still half an only child because my three siblings and I have the same father and different mothers. And I was a sociable young guy. I would have friends over all the time. And I'm sure it wasn't uh, it wasn't always a bowl of cherries for my mother to have to host a, a dozen rowdy teenagers as frequently as she did. But you know what? As the columnist said, you're kind of keeping them from going somewhere and getting in, getting into some sort of trouble. That's my take on it. I'd love to hear yours, though. We have uh, eight open lines, 800-848-9222. And I have a bet going with um, our producer, Alex Barnard. Um I am not sure that anybody is listening to us in the state of Nevada. 
he disagrees. So what we're going to do, if you call us from the state of Nevada to say anything, just call and say hello, say you, that we're, we're there, then um, we are going to give you a complimentary Other Side of Midnight T-shirt, uh, 800-848-9222. If you're a Silver Stater, no catch. We'll even pay, pay the, the shipping, and we will give you a complimentary Other Side of Midnight T-shirt. By the way, David emails uh, for the grandmother. This is his advice. Make a time when all the friends must go home, and the grandson can blame it on his parents or grandparents that they have this new rule that he must spend more time by himself doing homework or studying some certain hobby or subject. All right, so I guess that in your view, David, and again, it's why I prefer phone uh, conversation rather than email because I can't ask you follow-up questions. But in your view, David, I guess the time that you would pick is before dinner. Uh, That would not be my view. I think it's great that the kids want to have dinner there, and it's a great way to be involved in the lives of what they're doing parenting-wise and at school. So I think it's uh, I think that's that's my take. Um, I was going to say about our about this bet that you mentioned. Was this something that we shook on? I don't know if we uh, we'd actually formally. Well, you, you were behind the glass, so I mean I don't know that we formally shook on it. Yeah, so. well, I mean we could always formally shake on yeah. it if you wanted to. All right, well we'll, we'll formally fist bump. Fair enough. L- loser $5. has to buy a drink in uh, in Atlantic City this weekend. Oh boy! All there right. Well, we'll see about that then. All right. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Brian Kilmeade and Michael Traeger coming up in just a bit, and uh, we are going to uh, take your calls on a wide variety of other subjects as well, including um, a very bizarre commentary from uh, Al D'Amato yesterday, which we'll get into. But Joe uh, is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, great show, like always. Uh, I was listening to you uh, about the uh, grandparent with the kids coming over. And, you know, I, I have the same situation that goes on uh, with, you know, having a 15-year-old, uh, tons of kids always coming over. And uh, I, I feel I would much rather have them in the house um, and having him hang out. You know, I, I'll barbecue. I'll do pizza every once in a while because pizza's gotten expensive. But I like having the kids over. And some kids bring food, like snacks over. But we got a, a few kids that every time they come over, they never bring nothing. And, you know, my wife will say to me, you know, like, you know, everyone should chip in. When they, She said, we don't mind hosting you guys. But next time you come over, somebody bring, you know, a dessert or somebody brings chips. And, you know, we'll grill something up. And it seemed to work better that way. Yeah, um, well, that makes sense. So, a couple of things. Do your kids ever go to their house? That's the thing. We have some, uh, we have, my son's got this one little friend that they, we switch off, you know. My, our house seems to be the house where people want to go. I mean, I went over the, uh, over the weekend we went to Splash Flash, and we, my daughter took a friend with her, and we paid her way to get into the uh, venue, but when we were in there, and you know, Frank, how things are so expensive right now, um, they wanted to eat. And I looked at my wife, and the kid didn't have any money on them. And I said to my wife, you know, I, didn't, I paid for everybody, of course, but it wasn't a, it was for, uh, for like minor things. It was over $120 for just like snacks. And I turned to my wife, and I'm like, you know, but um, like I said, my daughter tends to have a lot of kids, I guess. They like coming to our house because a lot of our friends, the parents are divorced, single parents, and some of the parents 
let me be honest with you, Frank. She tells me stories about their drug addicts, alcoholics, and yeah, they love coming to our house because we're like the only guys, mother and father, that are kind of together. So what would you um, what would you advise this grandmother if you were counseling her on this issue? Well, to be honest with you, you know, be honest with the kids. And, you know, um, even if, you know, the kids all bring, go to their parents and say, hey, listen, she's getting pizza. Uh, I need to bring $5. And each kid wore $5, you know. But if it's, I don't know how often these kids are coming over there. We have a limit to, like, twice a week because the summertime just gets ridiculous. But, uh, you know, have them chip in, you know, uh, because there's nothing wrong with asking for a little help, you know, Frank? Yeah, um, that's fair. That's fair. Thank you, Joe. Another fellow just emailed me. Uh, he has one of these phone numbers that he emails from, which is, I don't know, I find that a little annoying. If you're going to use a phone number, text me. You can text me at 8168-MORANO. But the phone number guy says, as my mom always said, I'm not here to feed the neighborhood. See, I guess that's the difference in, um, in my family because my mother didn't hesitate to feed the neighborhood, you know, whether she was cooking, whether she was ordering, whatever. Uh, she had no qualms about feeding the neighborhood at all, especially when I was 14. But uh, when I was 14, I remember, you know, trying to go out a lot uh, as well. I didn't know. I, I probably wasn't home um, as often as my mother would have preferred. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, we are enjoying the services this week of uh, Broadway Bill Lee, the radio engineer, not the DJ, on loan to us from Curtis Lee. Well, what about you, uh, Broadway Bill Lee? What would you do if you were in this position? If the grandmother asked you for advice, what would you do? All right. Well, okay. You don't want to share your view. That's fine. Uh, no, no big deal. Um, Avery, you have a view on this. Uh, all right. We're, we're not gonna. We're not gonna have any luck hearing from Avery either. All right. No big deal. That's what I get from uh, trying to trust the Curtis crew to say something intelligent or insightful. My own blame. You, you know, a kid uh, takes the wheel out of uh, of a car at, at five years old and they crash into a train or a tree. You don't blame the five-year-old. You blame the person that gave them the keys. It's my fault. All right. Uh, we'll continue with your calls in just a minute. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Embrace me, my sweet embraceable you. Embrace me, my silk and laceable you. I'm in love with you. I am the great Frank Sinatra singing "My Sweet Embraceable You," the one of the great classics of uh, of his, done by a lot of other artists as well. 
including um, many, too many to list have had hits with that song, but nobody quite does it like uh, Frank Sinatra. Hey, uh, by the way, if you ever want to listen to the podcast of this program, if you ever miss a portion of it, all you have to do is search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano on any podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, you know, Cast box, whatever the case may be. And if you subscribe to it, you'll automatically get this podcast sent to your iPod or to your mobile phone each and every morning. It's really a great way uh, to do it. A couple of people have remarked this week that the podcast seems to be a little shorter than it usually is. I think that has to do with the fact that we're, we're national now. We're running a slightly different clock and there are a couple of minutes less in each hour. So uh, they're working on tweaking that a little bit. So I think come Monday, uh, the the clock should be back to a length that you're on you, that you're happy with again. So just bear with us. You know, every every national launch has its growing pains. OK, so hopefully by Monday, all those concerns will be assuaged. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Irene is in New Hyde Park. Hello, Irene. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good night. I just have a, I have, at this point, I have 13 great-grandchildren. Wow! Nine grandchildren. Congratulations. And three children. And and I must say, thank you, God, they've all been, they're all professionals, and they all do what they have to do, but they don't spend time with me, because they're too busy serving their whatever their fields of endeavor but I when I was brought up during the depression because I'm 90 years old we didn't have this kind of a house my we had uh, apple trees and pear trees at home and stuff and my mother would share that we came and the children never stayed they had to go home all the time and then you got a job when you were 12 and you worked until I'm working until now it so, just it fascinates me. So what would you tell this particular grandmother, Irene? Well, I don't know. I would tell her that she's only got one grandchild. That's what it sounds like based on her, her Doesn't article. It? Yeah, and I wonder about uh, uh, why does all those children have to be with him? Well, I mean, it sounds like he's a pretty sociable guy. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's... he's sociable, but I mean, who's watching the chi- all the children together? Right. Well, she, I mean, you know, they're, they're, how do you, you know they're teenagers. I mean, how much, you know, I mean, they're not well, five years old. I know, but you never know what happens because I know what happened once uh, when they got together and things go on that you don't even know go on. Not with mine, but I've heard it. Right. Well, let's uh, let's assume this 14 year old's a good kid, as it sounds yes, like he okay. is just like just like your uh, great grandchildren are. Um, what what would you tell her to do? I would tell her that they should have, but they should have some kind of a, an authority at home that doesn't let the children stay there that long. They have things to do when they go home. Don't they have provisions for the children? Don't they have to? Well, so I that's what you, to do. That's what you, you would know, tell I, her. That just tell yeah, them to leave. I, was, I think that they. I think it's wonderful when you're raised like I was raised that way. I didn't think it was wonderful, but now that I'm old, I think it's a great thing because it gives you character and you you know how to raise your children, your grandchildren, your great. You give them some kind of a thoughts besides just money. Well, Irene, you certainly, um, you, you don't sound 90, and uh, whatever character-building exercises your parents embarked upon, they certainly seem to have worked with you. Congratulations on having such a great family. Thank you, sir. Take care. 800-848-9222. So it sounds like Irene, I mean, I tried to pin her down politely on an answer. It sounds like she would just tell them to leave. That's as simple as that. Joe in Orange County, what advice would you give this lady? 
How you doing? Good. Well, basically, listen, you got to go back to your family morals. And when I was a kid and, you know, we grew up in Brooklyn, you know, it would be like 20, 30 kids coming over to my mom's house and dad's house on a Friday night. And my mom would make raviolis for everybody. So, but they knew when they came over the house, Joe's parents, they have rules. And, you know, it sets, it, it sets the standards of being the cool parents. You know, sometimes being the cool parents isn't the right way to go. Sticking to your morals and family, you know, family values, I, I think, you know, it sets, it sets a standard with other uh, kids. So, Joe, you know? let, me, let me try to ask the question again. This grandmother asks you for your advice on how to handle her situation with her grandson. What do you tell her? Basically, I would, I would tell her, listen, if the friends are going to tag along, you know, they have to go home at some, some point. But, you know, you would, you would try to make the time spent, you know, fun. You would try to make it like, you know, hey, you know, my grandmother wants to spend time with me, but she also respects that I have friends. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, you don't want your grandkids not to have friends, but, you know, then there's quiet time, too. Like, you know, grandma wants to spend time with you. Right. So you would just tell her to have her grandson tell the friends they have to leave before dinner. You know, at a certain time, you know, yeah. But then there's times where, you know, grandma wants to cook for everyone, you know, so but not to make it a habit. Gotcha. Sure. All right. Sure. Listen. You know, uh, listen, when I was a kid, and you could you could think think back, too, there was times if you played with your friends, remember the days where your parents would actually say, when you go outside, you can't make any noise. It's a Jewish holiday. You know, you, you know, it was, there were so many rules that we had to follow, and if we didn't, we came in the house. You know, so now I think things are a little bit lenient, and uh, parents now, we try to be the friend at times. But, you know, I always stick by the, the old the old school values. All right. Well, thank you, Joe. Um, so, uh, Joe, it sounds like we, it was a long way to get there, but it sounds like he said essentially the same thing Irene did, which is she would say, I mean, maybe he's a little less rigid than Irene is on that one, but he said he would tell them they have to go by a certain time. We're just not going to cook for you each and every day. I uh, I thought there might be some more creative answers in our audience. I'm a little I'm a little surprised and quite a bit disappointed, I must say. If you have one, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, I will say also, um, my wife and I, every year, just about every year, every summer, even when we were courting, we go away f- f- uh, during the summer to Cape May, New Jersey. And uh, we're going to do that in August. I'm looking forward to uh, to that very much. Uh, I think the first week in August. But, you know, my wife's paramount concern is always who's going to take care of the cats, especially now that two of these cats are on medication and they not only need to be fed, not only does the litter box need to be scooped, uh, but uh, now Bathsheba has to get two different types of blood pressure medication, one in the morning, one in the evening. And uh, I'm not sure when her treatment for for cancer is going to begin, but if she gets chemotherapy, then that may have to be administered at home as well. So there may be three types of medication this one cat gets in addition to just feeding them and uh, cleaning the litter box. So my wife says to me, but just before I left last night, she says, 
what are we going to do when we go to Cape May? Uh, who can I hire to take care of these cats? And I said, and I mentioned a, a friend of mine's daughter who lives in the neighborhood. I said, what about Lena? He says, no, I, I don't think she can do it, and she doesn't drive yet. What is she going to get dropped off by her parents twice a day here? It's not fair to her. I said, um, well, what about uh, what about my sister? What about my mom? What about your brother? Uh, what about the folks across the street? And she said, yeah, I just wish there was some sort of a service that I could use that didn't involve me essentially begging friends and family to help us out. It's not fair to them, and I feel like I'm really burdening them with this sort of a thing. She said there should be an app or something where you could go on, something like Rover, which is a dog walking app, I believe, where you can go on and tell folks what you need in terms of cat care, and that might include medication, and that you could just pay somebody to do it. So I'm curious if anybody knows about something like that. If you do, please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com because it would really help us out because she's stressed about it. And when she's stressed, I'm stressed. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Protecting America with Rita Cosby. You look at even the history, John Hatami, of Chesu Boudin. I mean, his parents were part of the Weather Underground. He used to visit them in prison. It's sort of this mindset, which is amazing. And they were part of this scheme, whereas we know with the Weather Underground, it was the Brinks robbery. There was a police officer who was killed, a security guard killed. I mean, it was amazing. I thought even that he got elected. He's never been a prosecutor. I don't understand why many of these cities in L.A. is the same way, where George Gaston never tried one case in his entire career. Individuals need to vote for somebody who has experience, who wants to lead from the front. A public defender who wants to be a public defender, who wants to blow up the system, and who wants to release violent criminals should not be a district attorney. No one should be voting for that person. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. Listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Protecting America with Rita Cosby. The chair, Benny Thompson, has been going after saying, oh, gosh, I can't believe that President Trump would even try to challenge this. Was he in the rubber room or, you know, I mean, all these kind of accusations. And yet you've got the chair, Benny Thompson, who never accepted basically Bush versus Gore results. He didn't accept Trump's election, nor did Jamie Raskin. They've questioned his legitimacy. So is Hillary Clinton. I mean, if you're throwing this a lot. Democrats. So in other words, it's okay for the Democrats to question the legitimacy, but it's not okay for President Trump or anyone else to question the legitimacy. Actually, the last election that Democrats unanimously accepted as valid was in 1988. They have questioned every election that they lost since then. Republicans, for a change, questioned the election. Democrats have been doing it for three decades. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. Listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. One Tough Podcast with Bo Deedle. Hi, this is Bo Deedle. I'm one tough cop who's got one tough podcast every week. I provide you with my views on how my home of New York City is being policed and give you insights on how we can keep New York the greatest and the safest city in the world. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform.
listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Protecting America with Rita Cosby. Victoria Coates, President Trump's Deputy National Security Advisor. How would you rate President Biden's performance so far on Ukraine? Because here it has been dragging a few months. It's hard to give anything above an F on this one. The administration was up on Capitol Hill right before the invasion, briefing the Congress that this would be a three-day war, and then we would be arming an insurgency, and that's what drove their strategy in terms of both funding and supplying the Ukrainians, which of course was completely wrong, because the Ukrainians fought back. The point being that the Biden folks got this wrong from the get-go. They were sending them the wrong weapons. They didn't have the well of congressional support they needed, and so now we're just kind of lurching from emergency requests to emergency request with no clear strategy in sight. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. Listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Let me tell you, hosted by the First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. I'm Joan Hamburg here. We bring you the best guests, the best information, whether it's where to eat, what to buy, or how to take care of your health. Remember, let me tell you, hosted by the First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, I got to tell you, so I was listening yesterday to the uh, the Cats at Night show, as I do just about every day, and uh, that's on uh, WABC and uh, several other radio stations every, um, every night from 5 to 6 Eastern. And it's a great show because the kind of combinations of people that you put together are the kind of combinations that you'd never see. Yes, uh, uh, two days ago, for instance, you had Bill Bratton on at the same time with, um, w- you know, with Eric Gonzalez. It's just such, there's all these weird combinations of folks, they mix and match, and you just, you have to listen because you don't know what kind of combination is going to be paired with whom. I love it. It's a great show. And I'm not just saying it because it's hosted by our boss. But I was listening yesterday to um, the former three-term senator of New York, uh, Al D'Amato. And I have to say a couple of things here. One, I realize that uh, it might be unwise for me to say this because Al D'Amato is a very powerful guy. In some respects, as a lobbyist and a power broker, he's actually much more powerful now than when he left office uh, in 1999. Two, I, I appreciate the fact that Al D'Amato always shares with on, what's on his mind. It's what has always made him so refreshing. Uh, long before Trump was a national political figure, D'Amato was being Trumpian in that respect. And that's one of the things I liked about Jesse Ventura, about Trump, about Oscar Goodman, about a number of plain-speaking, Bullworth-style politicians. And D'Amato certainly is that. D'Amato so often says things that I find objectionable, right? But that's no big deal. A lot of people on radio do. I found his behavior last night absolutely disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. Now, Rudy Giuliani, 
for um, whatever you might think of him these days, Rudy Giuliani was a superstar prosecutor. It's true that Al D'Amato did play a role in getting Rudy Giuliani Giuliani appointed to be U.S. attorney. D'Amato should be very proud of that. As a mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani was transformative. Transformative. If you want to look at a city that looked night and day different from the time one person came into office to the time they left, there's no clearer example of that than Rudy Giuliani. I mean, transformative. Now, then you take his leadership on September 11th. That, to me, is the stuff of legend. Did he make mistakes? Sure. But he was the leader that the country needed at a time of crisis. Then you take into account that the guy has dedicated the majority of his life to public service, which in my view counts for something, even if you don't agree with him. But let's say all of what I just said you give no credence to, okay? And let's say you forget about the fact that um, because of his service for Donald Trump, he is now stuck with millions of dollars worth of legal bills that the Trump campaign has done nothing to help him pay the bills for. Let's say you can't stand Giuliani as a person. You can't stand his politics. You don't like what he did as mayor. You don't like what he did as U.S. attorney. I have a lot of issues with what he did as U.S. attorney. Let's say you don't like him on the radio. Let's say you just don't like him. You got to understand He spent the last several weeks campaigning around the state, up and down the state, from Buffalo to Brooklyn, with his son Andrew, and was just hospitalized and just had heart stent surgery on Tuesday. Just had heart stent surgery on Tuesday. In spite of all that, this fella, Al D'Amato, who I have come to view, not just because of this, but just in general— as a real Gavon, goes and attacks him personally and brutally less than 24 hours later. Listen to what Senator Pothole had to say uh, about the guy that I think is probably going to go down in history as New York's greatest mayor. By the way, he is an idiot and he's no good. And I put him in office. He I don't know why you hold back, Senator Pothole. U.S. Tomato. attorney. I made it, and I'm talking about Rudy Giuliani. And I'll tell you something else. And nobody said a damn word about it. When George Pataki ran for governor, who came out and campaigned against him and flew around the state three weeks before the election? Rudy Giuliani. Do you remember that? I remember it. Kashi, I remember it. Wait, wait. It was my airplane. <laughs> John's airplane. Your but, airplane. But you know what oh, the result? Uh, but Senator, you know what the result was? Upstate, for, upstate turned out in droves. Yeah, he campaigned. He campaigned for Cuomo. Amazing, a great Republican. Now let me tell you this, Senator. He did do a good job. As mayor, he did. But Senator, he, it's it's Tony he, Carbonetti. Hold on, he he got, does, Tony Carbonetti. He, 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 to, he did a great job. He did a great job as mayor. Yeah. I know you guys have had a history for a long time. Um, what, you, yeah, what kind of history? Kind a, of a, history? a very troubled yeah, history, he Senator. Did a job as U.S. Attorney, I recommended him against my committee's judgment. Now let me say this to you: 
who who had him, this great Republican, campaigning for Cuomo? Why did he do that? Do you know why? Because, because Susan Molinari wanted to run. He wanted to be. Guy Bro, went to you. Guy went to you and said Susan wanted to run. Don't you interrupt me. I have... Don't interrupt me. Okay, Senator. He wanted to be the. Let me finish. He wanted to be the number one Republican. He didn't want there to be a Republican governor because as the mayor, he would be the number one. And he didn't want to lose that. And so he campaigned against Pataki. So I don't think he was a great Republican. Now, I said he did a good job as mayor. I never took that away from him. Well, be nice to people who just came out of the hospital. He's responsible for Trump. He gave him bad advice. He went to the Ukraine with two crooks, okay? The Ukrainian president himself said when these guys came over and started making propositions, he lost all respect for him, And, of course, he hurt Trump. Trump should have won that election. But it's his fault. He climbed in bed with a devious son of a gun. And he deserves everything he's gotten. He's a bad guy. So... I really found what D'Amato did there. I, I would found it, find it reprehensible if he said it about anybody, uh, forgetting about it's somebody that I happen to like. Um, I, calling the former mayor an idiot, calling him no good, calling him a devious son of a gun, calling him a bad guy, what a, and cursing twice on the radio. Now, D'Amato knows we had to bleep that. Um, D'Amato knows he's on the radio. Why would he be so foolish and so uncontrollable and unhinged to use profanity like that. I tell you, I have never liked Aldamato. I've never supported him for anything. Uh, but if it was possible for my opinion of Aldamato to crater even lower, it just did. And he's got to go back to 1994 to find why he doesn't like Giuliani. He endorsed Mario Cuomo 30 years ago, 28 years ago, and that's what he's going to hold against him? How about the incredible crime transformation that took place in New York City? Because he endorsed someone that was running against your guy, you're going to call him an idiot and no good? And by the way, he endorsed Giuliani in 97, and Giuliani endorsed him in 98. How's that for appreciation? The closest uh, election D'Amato ever had in the general election for statewide office, Rudy was there for him campaigning all over the state. And that's the appreciation Al D'Amato gives to him. And D'Amato said publicly after Trump won that Giuliani should be appointed by Trump as attorney general. So wasn't he an idiot back then? Wasn't he no good back then? Wasn't he a devious son of a gun back then? And to be that rude to Tony Carbonetti, another guy who has served this city very well, is just so, so disgusting. From now on, I am just done with Al D'Amato. And I realize I'm probably going to have to worry about getting whacked when I head out to Nassau County now. But so be it. I, I just I couldn't. I really cringed listening to him say that. He's a disgusting person, in my judgment. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Fleetwood Mac, Dreams. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, coming up next hour, we will uh, take a look at news deserts, not news desserts, not new desserts, but news deserts. And uh, we'll also uh, take a trip to Atlantic City and see what's happening in light of uh, what appears to be the avoidance of a major strike. 800-848-9222. Dottie is in Dover. Hello, Dottie. Hi, how are you, Frank? Great. I had a suggestion for you and your beautiful wife and Carmine when you go on your vacation. Why don't you check with Curtis Lewa's wife? I'm sure she can direct you. She's on your channel there on Friday night with her husband. Uh, talking about the cats and the animals, and that's the first thing I thought of. Well, you know, Curtis is listening right now, so I'm sure yeah. if, uh, I mean, she's probably listening too, so I'm sure if it's something they have insight into, they will, um, I'm sure, offer it. Curtis is never one to hesitate to offer advice. All right, until next hour, um, in the words of the great Bob Barker, speaking of Dottie, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'm reminded of that Dickensian quote. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. When, I guess, if you just wanted to have an economy of words there, you could have just said the times were okay. But uh, I'm reminded of it when it comes to news and news consumption. Because if you turn on the television set, if you turn on the radio, if you open up your mobile phone, if you go out on the street corner... You're inundated with news, 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 and more news. And yet, we're now in an era where around two newspapers in this country are closing every week. This is according to a new report, um, and it is creating news deserts. So... Two newspapers closing every week. This has gotten worse because of the pandemic, and it's going to get even worse in the future, in the near future. Hyperlocal communities are being disproportionately impacted by the fall of local newspapers. Even, um, even in New York, we still have some local media. But it's tougher in smaller cities. It's very tough in small towns. The average poverty rate in a news desert, which is the term that we use to apply to a community without a local newspaper, in the average poverty rate in a news desert is 16% compared to the national average, which is 11%. So this is from Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism Media and Integrated Marketing Communications. Uh, a professor at this uh, university said, this is a crisis for our democracy and our society. I agree completely. 
And while the economic decline in many communities was occurring prior to the rise of news deserts, the loss of a local news organization will leave local residents without critical information needed to address these problems. At a minimum, the loss of local news worsens the political, cultural, and economic divisions in our country. Listen to some of these statistics. The average median annual income of a home in a news desert is $15,000 less than the average U.S. household. Only 20% of adults living in news deserts have bachelor's degrees compared to 38% in the rest of the country. The lack of reliable local news compounds all sorts of issues related to local government. It makes communities less efficient. It makes communities less prosperous. And one study suggests government costs increase when local newspapers shutter. And if you think about it, it makes sense because there's nobody to keep an eye on the store. There's nobody asking questions. The report cites access to affordable broadband as one of the barriers blocking smaller and rural communities from gaining access to these new digital news alternatives. But around 7% of America's counties now have no local news outlet whatsoever. Think about that. 7% of this country has no local news outlet whatsoever. Around 20% are at risk of their communities becoming news deserts in the foreseeable future. Now, the surviving newspapers, and I've observed this firsthand, when I was growing up in my borough, I could tell you everybody that was running for office in every single race. From the time I was maybe 10 years old until about five years ago, all the parties' candidates in every single race in my borough. Now, I had more of an interest than most 12-year-olds did. But the point is, part of the reason I was able to get that information is because there was local political coverage every day in my local newspaper. Um, There was also local sports coverage. There was also local government coverage, which is not always the same, as you know, as local political coverage. And that is gone now. My local newspaper hardly covers local politics at all. If they do, they cover it in a superficial manner that gives you no real information. So newspaper employment has fallen around 70% over the last 15 years. Uh, The number of editorial staffers in local newsrooms have dropped 58%. Since 2005, New Jersey and Texas have lost the most newspaper journalists per capita, but they, along with other heavily populated states like California, New York, and Illinois, have also seen the highest levels of new digital investment. We'll talk about that in a second. So the demise of local news has caught the attention of a lot of nonprofit groups, and that's been a godsend in a city like New York. We have uh, Gotham Gazette. We have uh, The City, which is a wonderful publication, which without this publication, The City, I don't know what people would be doing to know about what's happening in terms of local uh, local news in New York. But, I, I mean, New York's a big city. We should have 40 local news outlets. And yet... We don't. So I am um, very, very concerned about this. The bottom line is most communities that have lost newspapers have not received a print or digital replacement. According to this report, there are 545 digital only state and local sites, but most of them employ six or fewer full-time reporters, and many are located in larger cities. 
Still, more digital-only news sites have launched compared to those that shut down during the pandemic, and that provides a little bit of hope. But the local newspaper sector is in a state of terminal decline. And I find this very troubling. So my question for you is a couple of things. And if you want to weigh in, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. One, I believe that the decline of local news and the ascendancy of these cable news networks, which, with a couple of exceptions, largely play into one political party or another, has contributed to polarization in this country. I believe these new deserts have absolutely made America a more divisive and more polarized place. I just saw an article yesterday that you know what has essentially gone away? Ticket splitting. It used to not be unusual at all for you to vote for a Republican for president and a Democrat for Congress, a Republican for governor, a Democrat for the state legislature. But now, with no local news coverage, people don't even know who their congressman or the state legislator is. They're just voting a straight party line. And I don't think you could say the country's in a better place for this. So, one, um, do you think news deserts are making America more polarized? Two, are they making the parties more polarized? One of the the articles that I read yesterday about why America has become so polarized and why ticket splitting has gone away is because we're seeing so few Southern elected Democrats. And I think that does go hand in hand with this movement towards news deserts. Three, what stories out there do you think are being missed because there's so little local journalism now? What do you think they're missing? You remember the whole story about Bell, California, and uh, all the money that they were paying to, um, you know, their local police chief? It was a, a, a princely sum. I mean, you want to you wanna go and, you know, really raise your eyebrows. You want to know what the Clarkstown town supervisor makes in New York. He makes a fortune for a, a, a small, you know, essentially running a small town. And I do wonder if there, I mean, Clarkstown, New York, population 86,000. The salary of the uh, town supervisor is about, I don't want to misquote it, it's $170,000 a year to run a town of 86,000 people. That's, I mean, that's incredible. The police chief makes a fortune in that town. And I'm not picking on that one town, but this goes on in towns all over the country, is with no one watching... These public officials are going to town. So uh, 800-848-9222. Also, aside from the nonprofit saviors, I would also love to know how you think we can get around this and what you think we can do about it. 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello, JR. Frank, good morning. Unfortunately, I don't think you're going to be getting around it much at all for a couple of different reasons. The digital age is clearly taking over um, any news publications 
I mean, in New York City, it's even very limited, like AM New York and the city, the paper you were talking about. They're, they are very good. Number one, you can't afford – people can't afford to buy a Daily News or a New York Post. They're like $2.50 an issue. Number two, the billionaires are buying the news. They just had this problem down in Miami where Soros is buying a, uh, a conservative newspaper and they are making it most likely into a liberal-based one. So the billionaires are just buying the market, regardless of whether it's rural. So you're probably never going to see it come back, unfortunately. Well, you know, I remember everybody raised this when Murdoch was buying all these newspapers. And what Curtis said at the time, and I agreed with him, is that if somebody is willing to lose money buying all these papers to keep these journalist jobs there and to keep these newspapers uh, open, I'm all for that. Now, I know Rupert Murdoch's political leanings, and I know George Soros' political leanings, but the reality is newspapers will always have an agenda. I, I would rather have a newspaper that has a liberal or a conservative or a libertarian or a whatever, Sun Young Moonish uh, agenda than have no newspaper at all. I mean, uh, but uh, I'm wondering if there's one, do you agree with the premise that this is contributing to America being more polarized? Two, do you agree with the premise as spelled out in this report that it's a make it's making America poorer and making government services more expensive? And three, what can we do about it? it I, I mean, I'm not ready to just throw up my hands like I think J.R. is. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Oh, Frank, thanks for taking my call. I just want to go back. I hope I'm not wait, uh I just wanted to agree with you in, in regards to uh, Al D'Amato. I just wanted to say that uh, he was very rude to uh, Tony Carbonetti, who is, uh, you know, part of that group that takes questions. I know he served in the Giuliani administration. And D'Amato and the animosity with the former mayor, and I agree with you, uh, Rudy Giuliani will probably go down as the best mayor in New York City. He did so much for crime. But by the way, the Al, Al even if he was a terrible mayor, like uh, I don't think, exactly. uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, Bill de Blasio was a good mayor. I don't think it would be appropriate for Al D'Amato to talk about Bill de Blasio that way. Exactly. You know, I just want to just uh, finish off with this. You know, when D'Amato ran for the Republican nomination in 1980, he was the West Hempstead supervisor. So Javits, who was the Republican senator, he was uh, from the liberal wing. Uh, D'Amato, you know, beat him up in the primary, and he beat him. So Javits and him really didn't like each other. So Javits had the liberal line. And Javits figured that he would cost D'Amato the race by staying in the race. But little did Javits realize that he took the Jewish votes from Holtzman and Holtzman lost to D'Amato by 1%. Yeah, I know the history, but I don't think that has anything to do with D'Amato's remarks yesterday. No, but you know, you're right. I didn't want to get off point there, but I agree with you. It was uh, uh, He shouldn't have done that. All right, thank you, Al. 800-848-9222. Joe is on Staten Island. Hello, Joe. Hi, Frank. I want to also add something about uh, D'Amato. He's always rubbed me the wrong way, and I couldn't put a finger on it, but listening to him, the way he treated uh, the guests and the, that show, uh, John Katz's show, incredible. And I think I know the reason. He's definitely been into – and it's, it's ironic because Rudy Giuliani is often accused of this. But I'm, I'm 90 percent sure that 
the motto has been into the bad bourbon or whatever the booze of his choice is. I don't know if it's Grappo or whatever it is. But that guy, he was talking about three sheets to the wind, talk about an angry drunk. Listen to that again, Frank. You think so, huh? I do. Well, that's interesting. I, I, I don't know if that's true. I've always found D'Amato to have a tendency to fly off the handle. And the stories that I've heard about his behavior over the years, I don't think they're necessarily tied to uh, heavy drinking. And I'll tell you what, you know, there is no heavier drinker than me. Uh, when I'm not on air, I'm drunk 70 percent of the time. And you don't see me screaming at people, calling people an idiot. The worst thing I'll do when I'm drunk is I'll tweet that some unnamed politician is a loser. I wouldn't even call them out by name. Now, I'm not Al D'Amato, but still, I, I don't think drunkenness, if that's what we, was, we heard there, I don't think that's an excuse. Neil's on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Frank, it's very rare, but I agree with you a thousand percent about D'Amato. I, I think maybe as he's getting older, he's getting crankier, uh, and he's just like a turncoat. But we have another turncoat, Bo Deedle. He supported uh, Adams, and now he can't say a good thing about Adams. Why he supported Adams is beyond me. You would think he would know better, but uh, he's another schlemiel. Um, and one more thing, Frank, as far as somebody mentioned Soros, I read on the news today that Soros is buying about 12 different Spanish-speaking uh, uh, newspapers uh, because uh, the, the, the Hispanic vote is going towards the Republicans now, and I think he wants to get involved to, to try to turn that. Well, I'm sure I'm sure he does. Uh, I, I'm sure that's true. Uh, no doubt about it. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. animals nobody liked the animals you know eric burden how many musicians can say they were part of two incredible rock bands well i mean you got paul mccartney he certainly can eric burden uh can i suspect very few others can i mean and i don't mean good i mean incredible and really just next level i mean i think you'd be hard-pressed to name more than a dozen classic all right um Hey, you know what I saw? And I know uh, Dominic Carter was talking about this earlier on his program, but um, there was this article in the New York Post, and it's gone viral, about these angry customers, three women in their 20s, 
that trashed this fast food restaurant on the uh, Lower East Side on Ludlow Street. And my friend has a bar right up the block from there and a, and a pizzeria right up the block from there. And apparently this took place at 4 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. And all three of these women were arrested. And I, I'm just amazed. You see this tirade that apparently started, and look, they're probably drunk from going all the bars on the Lower East Side. But the, 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 this tirade started over the women's anger at the restaurant's $1.75 fee for extra sauce. And they went crazy. They trashed the whole place. And an employee who's filming the incident tells the women, you're going to go to jail as they hurl items at her, at him, all while an alarm's going off. At one point, one of the three women gives the employees the middle finger, and in another moment... A different woman dances on top of the counter. I just, I don't know what's going on in this city and in this country. I could tell you, if Mayor Giuliani was still the mayor, this would not happen. It would end. It would absolutely end. It would be over. There'd be zero tolerance for this. Instead, in New York these days, this is now par for the course. This is now what you expect on a daily basis. We considered a victory in New York if no one's shot. $1.75 for extra sauce. Sheesh. So police arrested the three women um, on uh, robbery and criminal mischief charges. Apparently, one of these real class act women, um, 27 years old, she punched the cop that arrested her in the face. And she was slapped with additional charges of assault of a police officer resisting arrest and obstructing governmental administration. You have to wonder where these women were raised. I really, at least I do. 800-848-9222. We're going to do the AC report in just a minute. Tom in the Boogie Down Bronx is holding. Hello, Tom. Yes, Frank. Uh, these news deserts, I think, have to do with a lack of advertising in the newspapers, and you you have problems on radio, too, and TV, I imagine, where you don't have the ads you used to have. Well, I think that's true, Tom, because there are so many different ways to reach people. Right, exactly. That's what what I was going to say. There are so many more different ways to reach people now. If I'm selling a product that's geared for uh, retired postal office, retired postal workers who don't have cable that live in the Bronx... Uh, that are over the age of 65, I can target ads online that just reach those people. So why would you run an ad in a newspaper that, um, you know, that uh, you don't know who's going to read it necessarily? Now, with the digital ads, that's a little bit different. There are some tracking. But my point is, Tom, thank you for the call. The implications of the demise of local journalism are so significant and so real that I think... We need to do something about it. I mean, this is almost, I think, a national crisis. There's something wrong. It's like water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. I can turn on my television set and find 12 national or international news networks, but I can't find out what's going on down the block from me. I mean, I can because I live in New York, but it's easier. We're now at a time where it's easier to find out what's going on in Baghdad than it is what's going on in Brooklyn. And that's a big problem. Walter's in Newark. Hello, Walter. 
Hey, good morning, Frank. Long time, first time. Thank you. Welcome aboard. Now, I've been in the media business for, oh, my goodness, for like uh, roughly 40 years. And I've definitely seen the decline around here in, uh, in, in Essex County. Uh, we've had one uh, state newspaper. Well, there's one Newark newspaper that survived, but they call themselves a state newspaper, and they moved to Woodbridge for the headquarters. Yeah, no, I know the newspaper uh, you're referring right. to. There's a there's another. Now there's a group of weekly papers with a flagship uh, daily paper out of oh I don't know where they are West Patterson or Woodland Park wherever they call themselves these days. Their their content has just sadly declined. I mean they're like uh, they're 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 like oh my goodness. I mean they they got stories that are out on average two weeks old, and they they they, they have no compunction in pulling stories from outside the uh, the the uh, the S County territory to just to fill in things on the QT. There's a traditional chain of weekly papers based well they used to have offices in Orange, Bloomfield. Uh, uh, Maplewood and Union, but now that helps consolidate the Union, and they they don't do hard news unless they have to because mm. they need they're hanging on to uh, they're hanging on to their uh, uh, legal notices. They need the legal notices from the uh, from the uh, from from the governments. Uh, there's a one more. Uh, there's a, there's there is some hope. There's one there's a there's one paper out of uh, out of Montclair. That uh, that that's doing a good traditional job, but they also have very strong uh, internet presence. Yeah, I mean, I'm not disputing that, uh, Walter, but I think the numbers sort of speak for themselves in terms of the direction that the whole country's going in. And I don't think even, and it's helpful to have you point out the news outlets, where they are and where they're going, but uh, I don't think we've necessarily put our finger on how we're going to fix this problem. And I appreciate the call, though, Walter. Uh, We'll go live to Atlantic City. Well, not literally to Atlantic City, but we will talk about Atlantic City, Nevada, and Vietnam straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, it blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. And it blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state. And the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commission is hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up This is our weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in all the world, a city which I'm looking forward to visiting on Friday. I've been away far too long. Our look at Monopoly City, Atlantic City. 
And we do that uh, with a real expert on uh, casinos and travel in general, uh, internationally in both cases, Michael Traeger. He is a luxury travel and casino gaming industry entrepreneur with TravelZork.com. TravelZork is a terrific website which focuses on casino travel and the casino experience. Michael, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Michael. So we're now airing this segment and this show is now airing nightly in Nevada. And uh, uh, some folks were giving me a little pushback about still calling this the AC report when we're airing in Nevada. Do you have any problem with us still calling this the AC report now that we're in Nevada? Ooh, that's an interesting one. And by the way, I did notice that syndication. That's really uh, that's really exciting. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm a little partial to the fact that I love Atlantic City, and I always like to be promotional of Atlantic City, even to the Nevada folks. And I think the AC report, you've always covered more than just mm. AC. So I I don't know. I think for now, I think it, it sort of sticks as the AC report. But I could I could see somebody saying that. But you know what? There's a lot there's a lot of people who talk Nevada and Las Vegas and not that many people who talk at least exactly. have some focus on exactly. Atlantic City. By the way, if people are thinking about a trip to either location uh, and maybe they haven't been in a while or maybe they've never been to one or both, what is the what's the key differences in the casino culture or even maybe the rules of certain games? Roulette comes to mind uh, when you're talking about gambling in a place like New Jersey versus a place like Nevada. Well, I mean, it's I, I think it's a it's a different experience. But I think one of the great things about Atlantic City is that you always had that quote, strip, which was the boardwalk, which was very similar to having strip casinos. And you could go from casino to casino. You mentioned roulette, you know, and I think people don't bring this up often enough, but New Jersey has, you know, New Jersey has really great uh, roulette rules for uh double zero roulette where you get, I think it's, what is it? Half, half your money on, back. Uh, uh, if you bet exactly. black or red and or that- odd or even. Yeah, and that was and that was something instituted by New Jersey Gaming years ago because New Jersey was uh, the second gaming jurisdiction in the country, and New Jersey Gaming was pretty good about the you know pretty good about the rules for for games. So that's that's something that's definitely people should keep you know definitely people should keep an eye on. I think the I think the craps action from an atmosphere has always been really really good in New Jersey. I think the gamblers sometimes seem a little bit more serious. But I also think when you talk about Nevada, people will often say that it's more of a party kind of culture mm. at the at the tables. You know, everyone's there to you know, it's everyone's there to be on vacation. So it's a lot it's a lot of different kind of. Yeah, you know, no, that's true. That's a experience. great observation. Now, I, I've certainly been to Las Vegas. And when I was there last, you were kind enough to give me a bunch of different recommendations of uh, in terms of tier matching, in terms of restaurants, in terms of everything. Uh, but I've not been to casinos in other parts of the state of Nevada. Have you gotten much of a chance to explore other casinos in, in Nevada outside of Las Vegas? Yeah, I fell. I, I sort of fell in love uh, with with Laughlin. Uh, during COVID when I was out on the West Coast and I went to Laughlin a few times and I, I thought it was just amazing because you had the multiple casinos, low low table limits, and it was just sort of like chill, easy, laid back kind of environment to gamble on. And you have that like the whole river atmosphere. So I thought Laughlin was really, really interesting and is sort of like a 
I don't know, it's like a sleeper kind of town. And it's only about 90 minutes hmm. from uh, Las Vegas. But was also was interesting is you have, if you're like a history buff and you're into some of these properties, I stayed at the Golden Nugget when we were when I was in Laughlin. And they have these villas. They have a villa at the Golden Nugget and you can actually rent them midweek. And that was a villa that Steve Wynn used for a while when the, the Golden Nugget was actually Steve Wynn's Golden Nugget in, in Laughlin. So I oh, thought that was pretty that, cool. But there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Did, so I understand that you just came back from Vietnam, Vietnam of Vietnam War fame. What were you doing in Vietnam? I hear, I hear you there for a couple of weeks. Yeah, well, I was my I was trying to plan a sort of epic, for lack of a better term, trip for my 30th anniversary with my wife. Hmm. And Congratulations, we decided to do by something. Happy anniversary. Thank you. And we decided to we decided to do something that was rather boring, which was an Alaska cruise. <laughs> and the cruise wound up got, getting canceled uh, because they had to eliminate a certain number of people from the ship because of staffing issues. So we were left about a month before without our anniversary plan, which we had come up with. And I was poking around. I, you know, I do retail travel. I sell travel. I work as a luxury travel advisor. And there were some really good deals for Vietnam. And I just, you know, on a whim, just said to my wife, you know what, let's, uh, let's go to Vietnam. You know, there's some great beach resorts. It's exotic and it'll be great. And that's sort of how it came, you know, that's sort of how it came yeah. about. So it was, it was one of the best trips we've ever had because it mixed a lot of different things together, you know, and that was great. And of course I avoid casinos on those trips because my wife wants my attention. <laughs> well, so for the well, most part, what did you, what did you do out there? Uh, what were the things to see out there? And I'm sure you had to do at least some field research and visit the casinos in Vietnam. So tell us about those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, jumping into the casinos, you know, Vietnam casinos are relatively new in Vietnam. Well, I, I mean, they're still a communist country and they have casinos. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, there's so much. Uh, I mean, you you broaden your your view of things so much when you go there, because, of course, I was always wondering as an American, like, how do people view Americans in Vietnam? You know, and it's it's so interesting to me, even things like like Saigon, you know, because Saigon is Ho Chi Minh, you know, Ho Chi Minh, and you don't refer to it as Saigon anymore. But then I found out from Vietnamese that since Saigon was really the name that was there for so many years, many people still actually do refer to hmm. it as Saigon. You know, I'm always so worried these days, you know, what you should call an individual city. But we started in we started in Hanoi and actually at the hotel that we stayed at, there was a casino nearby and it didn't have any live table games, but it had slot machines and it had these great automated Baccarat games. And I know you enjoy Baccarat. Absolutely. I've never played automated Baccarat. Well, it's, it was a, so it was a game where the dealer was there and she, she could make the cards display on your terminal. Hmm. But I was so confused because whenever I've seen those electronic games, usually the cards just flip over and it just shows you what the hand is. Right. You could actually squeeze the corners of the card by touching the electronic display. So you could lift it up almost like electronically. <laughs> I, it's hard to describe, you know, on the display and then finally decide to flip the card over. 
you know, once you would learn, it was like sort of like a pinch on the screen kind of thing. And I had never seen that before. And I thought it was absolutely hysterical. So it was all, it was an electronic game, but it was actually a squeeze game that was electronic. And I don't know if you're a Baccarat player, this excites you. Probably everybody else thinks like I'm absolutely insane, oh, but I thought it was very no, interesting. No, I, I think that's interesting. Overall, how did you compare the casinos uh, from, uh, you know, Vietnamese casinos to what you might see in the United States? You know what? Casinos outside of the United States are always totally differently uh, different. I've been to Macau once. I mean, the best way that I would describe it, like all the slot machines, if you're into that, are all different varieties of these dragon games. They're not, they all seem about the same to me. And most players are playing basically Baccarat or Roulette. And the Baccarat is really, really popular. And, and do they charge of, the, the commission out there for the, uh, for the banker bets? Yes. And they also have versions of no, no commission Baccarat. And in, in a country like Vietnam, everything is done in U.S. dollars. Hmm. So that's sort of funny too, right? You go right, in, exactly. you, just put your US, you just put your U.S. dollars in the slot machine. But they opened this new, uh, this new casino outside of Hoi An, which is about a half hour from Da Nang. And it was this resort casino. And I had heard about it. Uh, we heard about it when we were at a tailor because you can get all kinds of clothing made in Vietnam and everything in this crazy guy came in and said he was in from Singapore and going at this new casino. And on a whim, we went over there that night and it was like out of nowhere, there was this huge casino <laughs> resort. It's, it was, it was amazing, you know, and they had all of these different table games. So it was so interesting there. And they had a lot of Baccarat is the high limit Baccarat they were doing in Hong Kong dollars. And then on the main casino floor, they actually had uh, Vietnamese dong and U.S. dollar tables, but it was, I mean, they had so much currency going on, uh, but they had, they had real, real squeeze games and they actually had a squeeze game as low as, as $30. But I guess getting back to your question, most of the people there are hardcore gamblers hmm. like these, uh, you know, these people in Asia, they're there, they're there to gamble and win and be in the action. It is not a drink party recreational kind of thing. Like it's, it's pretty darn serious, which is sort of fun to watch. Um, well, that is pretty interesting. So it sounds like you'd definitely recommend Vietnam as a place for people to vacation. I think it's a very interesting country to vacation to. It's a great value. I mean, you can you can basically go for dinner at night for five to ten dollars hmm. a person. Uh, I felt very safe everywhere we went. I mean, the problem is Southeast Asia is far away. Sure. You know, it's a long it's a it's a long trip, but the beaches are amazing. Uh, the culture is amazing, and it's it's definitely something to consider. And it was sort of fun to get back into the groove of travel when I hadn't been traveling for for so long. And also, then you start to read up on Vietnam, and you know relate like okay i'm in da nang what happened in da nang and you know there's lots going on in your head and i think that's what's also so interesting about oh sure travel. absolutely uh talking with michael traeger he is a casino gaming industry entrepreneur with travelzork.com travelzork's a, a terrific restaurant uh, website that uh, focuses on the casino travel and uh, uh the casino travel experience there's also a terrific youtube channel and uh, podcast, just search Travel Zork on any platform you want, and it comes right up. Now, uh, back to the Northeast. I understand that uh, travel to Atlantic City has gotten a lot easier. How so? American Airlines now 
has instituted a new service where you can actually book a flight to Atlantic City Airport, but you're actually not flying into Atlantic City Airport. You're flying into Philadelphia and they operate what we would call the last mile on a bus service, but it's all seamless. So literally it's like you you book a flight from, like I just recently booked a flight from Charlotte because I live in Charlotte to Atlantic City and it goes from Charlotte to Philadelphia. And then basically they've got a bus, an American Airlines bus transfer to Atlantic City. So they can connect people from anywhere in the country through Philadelphia to Atlantic City Airport. And while some people might say it's a little crazy that you're flying in and going on a bus, it's all on one ticket hmm. and it's all meant to make it a seamless travel experience. So they also like they also will transfer the luggage to the bus, you know, and you wind up in Atlantic City Airport. So I thought that was pretty neat and obviously optimally it would be great if they could fly into Atlantic City. Well, that was Airport my question. Because- why do they do that? Why do the airlines why are they not able to offer service directly to Atlantic City International Airport? Well, I think part of it is, you know, part of it is a cost, you know, you have to, to have an operation in, in an airport, there's a lot that goes into, you know, having the ground staff, even if they're third party operators, you know, having the flights scheduled, filling those flights, you know, all of the cost of that operation. Remember for American Airlines, Philadelphia is a, Philadelphia is a hub for them. So what they're doing is, and they're doing this not just with Atlantic City, but with a few cities, a few different cities, they're doing that last mile on a bus so that they can basically offer additional cities. Also, you have that other issue now, and you hear this all the time, airlines are short on pilots, they're short on aircraft, the system is really full. So it's a way for them to offer, you know, offer another city without actually having to allocate aircrafts and pilots. Well, that makes sense. That. Sure. So it's sort of it's sort of a nifty it's sort of a nifty a nifty idea, but also you know, part of it is it shows up in the global booking systems now. So somebody goes to book a flight and they're in, uh, I don't know, in Omaha and they say Atlantic City It now routes it through Philadelphia yeah. and they'll be able to book that ticket, which is which is actually really good for the city. Absolutely. Know, Absolutely. No question about it. And that's what you're doing on your next trip to Atlantic City. Yes, I'm doing that on my next trip to Atlantic City because I'm going in August for uh, the Everything Atlantic City group. I know you've mentioned them quite a few times and had them on your show. And they're having, I think, their sixth anniversary. And that's a really cool community of people who love Atlantic City. And they're doing... Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to try and um, I'm gonna try and be there for that. Well, when is that this year? That is on August 20th. Oh. And I think everything is happening at Bally's, which is really, really excited. Because yeah. as you've mentioned many times before, it's just great having this new, you know, I mean, we put in quotation marks, new casino property, but it's great to have another owner and another casino property in Atlantic City. I mean, that's what we, that's what we always want to see, you know, just, hey, it's the same thing, you know, pivoting back to your Nevada thing. You know, it's wonderful seeing like Resorts World and in Las Vegas. It's great to see like new properties open up, right? I mean, that's always exciting. It's always great to have that competition and additional properties that aren't necessarily part of the MGM ecosystem or the Caesars ecosystem. It's just great to Absolutely. have this additional competition. Absolutely. And uh, especially because from what I understand, and I will find this out firsthand this weekend, Bally's is currently offering 10 times craps odds, which is something that no of the, uh, none of the other uh, casinos in Atlantic City are doing, uh, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, before we run out of time, Michael, how big of a deal was it that it seems like this 
strike from the Atlantic City Hotel uh, workers has been avoided. What sort of uh, what sort of difference would that have made had it taken place? I, you know, the, the, the biggest problem for me when that kind of thing happens is, as it just puts this whole sour note on the city. And mm. as we know now, the you know, in general, service standards are really difficult everywhere you travel with regard to staffing and service levels and all of that. And my biggest fear, especially now that, you know, people are traveling again, people seem to be really happy to be traveling to Atlantic City for for numerous reasons. I hate I hate to see people have a bad experience. And obviously, when you have fewer mm. employees and in one of the busiest periods of time, they're not going to have a great experience. So I'm really glad that's avoided just for that, because I just and I would feel I would feel that in any, you know, I'd feel the same way in in Nevada, too, you know, because this is this is a serious issue now with with staffing at, at these hotels and providing the levels of service that they would like to provide. It's true. It's just a crazy time now, you know, in travel airlines, hotels. No, that's for sure. Uh, Michael Traeger, it is always a treat to talk with you. Uh, Hopefully I'll see you in person on August 20th for that, uh, for that meetup. Yeah, that would be great. And it's always great to chat. Thank thanks, you. Uh, thanks for having me on again. Oh, you can check out Michael's writing and his podcast at TravelZork.com. Some great stuff on there. I learn a lot from that website. That's for sure. Uh, we'll take your calls next. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you uh, want to comment on anything that we are talking about, you can do so 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. You know, I'm I'm very excited for this trip to Atlantic City uh, on Friday. My first one there since December. I will tell you, you know, I do wonder, a friend of mine, was able to make a, a, a connection with me with one of the hosts slash executives there at the uh, at the Hard Rock. Now, because I haven't played there in forever uh, in any of the casinos in Atlantic City, I really don't have any comps there, and it's tough to get any um, you know to get any comps on weekends during the summer. Anyway, you know, weekdays you could always get a, a comp room, but even at a you know the hotels that are that are not necessarily the top tier of hotels. You know, usually Friday or Saturday during a nice summer weekend, it's pa- everything's packed. It costs you two hundred, two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars, even at a you know second or third tier hotel. So, a friend of mine was able to make a connection with me to uh, one of the executives over at Hard Rock, and they were kind enough to get me a complimentary room. And I wanna, so I almost feel obliged to play at the Hard Rock now, even though I wouldn't normally play there. So now I uh, I kind of feel like I should play there. But then the other part of me thinks, well, you know, maybe I should just find this host that was kind enough to get me a comp room and just give him a $100 bill and then play at uh, other casinos like Bally's 
that are better able to offer better odds for the games that I like to play. I'll, I mean, look, knowing me, I'll probably end up playing in both places, you know, or several places. We'll see. But uh, Or I may not play at all. I might just do the leisurely boardwalk stroll kind of thing. Hey, if you want to comment on uh, anything we've covered thus far, we will take your calls next, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the late, great Bob Grant, your influence counts, so make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I'd say, in listening to um, Michael Traeger and uh, hearing about how his whole 30th anniversary trip, supposed to be a big cruise to Alaska, probably was looking forward to it. The wife was looking forward to it. You know, I'm just thinking... I mean, it worked out for him, but I'm thinking what a bummer that must have been when you have a whole vacation plan, a whole trip plan, and then it gets scrapped like that at the last minute. And it got me thinking. I saw this article in uh, the Washington Post uh, four days ago, Vacations Gone Wrong, Six Stories of Epic Travel Fails. And it begins... Essentially saying things don't always go as planned. That's especially true when it comes to traveling over the 4th of July weekend. Flight delays and cancellations left thousands of Americans scrambling. And as the high season for summer vacation begins, travelers are bracing for more setbacks. And then it chronicles six stories from regular people about just horrible things that have happened to them on vacation. My um, brother's parents-in-law... We're supposed to come to New York for Father's Day weekend. Their trip got canceled last minute, and they had to stay in Texas because of COVID. So I'm wondering, what is your worst vacation story? Maybe it's a story of a vacation that never occurred. Maybe it's a story of something bad that happened on vacation. I remember I went to Italy about three years ago with a tour group, and two of the people in this tour group got pickpocketed. They got their wallet or their uh, purse stolen. And that, I imagine, would have been a nightmare for these folks. I mean, these folks seem to take it in very good, you know, in stride. But, I mean, you talk about a nightmare situation. friend of mine uh, got married in Mexico. I didn't end up going to the wedding. I, I really regret not going to that one. But whatever, I didn't end up going. This is about 10 years ago. And... Like four of the five of the fellas that went on this destination wedding trip to Mexico, they all got sick. They all vomited like crazy. 
And then part of me thinks, all right, I'm kind of glad that I didn't think that. I was trying to think as I read this article what my worst vacation story was. And I have to be honest, I think I've been pretty lucky. And I racked my brain, and the only thing that I could really think of I mean, I mean, this inconvenient things that happen in this airport or that airport is certainly as Bill O'Reilly could tell you. But um, I think the only thing that um, that I can ever really think of happening is I remember in 2005, 2005. Yeah, maybe it was 2006, 2005 or 2006. I was producing the uh, Curtis and Kuby morning show at the time at WABC and I was, I'd never been to Miami, and this was a point in my life that I had a whole bunch of friends that happened to be living in Miami. Every one of them had an open invitation to me for me to stay with them. And I think at the time, no, yeah, I'm certain of it. A friend of mine had a hotel in Miami that was like a go-to party spot back then at the time. So I was really looking forward to this trip to Miami, and then they announce maybe... Um, three weeks before I'm supposed to go, they announce that they're going to do this special promotion where they take all the commercials out of the morning show. And the program director at the time, he really makes me feel guilty about, I said, by the way, Phil, I'm going to be away on vacation that week. And he really made me feel guilty. And I was a young guy at the time. I was eager to make a career in radio and prove my, my mettle. And he made me feel guilty and essentially said, well, you're going to miss this whole first week and first day that's changing the whole history of the morning show. Uh, A time when the morning show and the station is going to have all these challenges. You're leaving to go on vacation to go have fun in Miami. And he really got to me. So I canceled my trip. I think I I gave the tickets that I had purchased to a friend of mine uh, or the ticket. I was going solo. I gave it to a friend of mine and he had a great time. But uh, I was really bummed. And still to this day, I still haven't been to Miami. And now, these days, Miami's the uh, the cryptocurrency capital of the world. And I really do regret canceling that uh, that trip. I mean, it was fun to be on at the launch of a, a new promotion, that going commercial-free and doing this and that. But I do miss uh, the fact that I didn't get to go there. So I'd love to hear from you. What is your worst vacation story? Maybe it's a trip that didn't happen Maybe it's something that uh, that happened on the trip. Overall, if you had to pick your worst vacation story, what would it be? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Very, very curious because, honestly, I've had pretty good luck. You know, the, the fun thing about going on vacation, aside from not having to commute to work, right? Get up and commute to work. That's always the thing. But the fun thing about going on vacation isn't, in my opinion, and I think this is backed up by psychologists, the reason it's beneficial to your mental health and your mental well-being is because you get you spend a lot of time looking forward to the vacation. And that looking forward to a vacation helps you get through some, you know, some tough days or some tough times. It's not necessarily going on the vacation itself. Let me share with you a couple of these stories uh, in this Washington Post article while you queue up at 800-848-9222. Autumn Gonzalez, 44 years old, of Portland, Oregon, describes 
the stomach bug that got us all in the end. And she talks about when she was 10 years old back in 1987, her father took her sister and her to Disneyland. And the plan was to meet her uncle and her cousins at the hotel they were staying at in Anaheim, and they'd all enjoy a three-day vacation together. Everything was going swimmingly until on the first night they're all there, one of her cousins just leaned over and threw up on the pier as they're walking back to the hotel from dinner. It turns out that her other cousin had caught some stomach bug on the train to Anaheim and had spent the day vomiting in the bathroom on the train. Cut to the waking up cut to waking up to the sounds of her uncle throwing up into a trash can the next morning. And later that morning, she, uh, this lady Miss Gonzalez chirping, I can't believe we're finally here at the gates of Disneyland. And then as she said it, she immediately bent over and started throwing up herself. So that was the sick where the trip where everybody got uh, got sick. Lily Van Bergen of Forest, Virginia. Talks about her mom. She and her mother were in Lyon, France, on a day trip to see the city. She fell off her electric bike and needed to go for an overnight stay at the hospital. Everything was okay. And they ended up needing to cancel all kinds of trips in Paris where they were staying. And they had to fend for themselves in a foreign country. She had to fend for a foreign country by herself for two days at the age of 17. Now, luckily, she spoke a sufficient level of French and was able to translate and give some information. But for the most part, she was completely panicked. Sometimes she'd lose her ability to speak French altogether. It was an insane experience. And then when they finally made it back to their VRBO rental, they were relieved, but they had to fly back home the next day. So she said the whole thing really put a damper on her trip. And that reminds me, actually, when I was a child, my mother took me to France. And, you know, on the, on the whole, it was a good trip. Um, saw a lot of the sites. You know, we, we went and saw a lot of sites that I think at my age, which I was nine or ten, you can't really appreciate as a young person. Like we, I, I mean, to me, it was just a lot of waiting in line to see things that I didn't care about for the most part. But um, we, I did get sick one day. I think um, I, uh, I don't remember what I had eaten, but I ate something that didn't agree with me. And I, I got sick in a, in a car or a van somewhere. That was kind of a bummer. But you're over it. I mean, you get sick, and at least in my case, you, you eat a whatever it was a chocolate uh, a chocolate croissant or something, and you get sick and you you move on. And you feel better a lot of the time afterwards. So, what is your Worst vacation story. Tell me. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Brian Kilmeade joining us in about 20 minutes. We'll also do the $1,000 Minute coming up in about uh, in about 15 minutes where you'll have an opportunity to win some money if you can answer some trivia questions. Mark in Rochelle Park, what's your worst vacation story? Hey, Frank. Uh, it's 1975. I'm 11 years old. I remember the day, or maybe you don't remember, the travel agents used to always do your vacation stuff. And I found in my parents' bedroom that we're going to Disney World in the summer of 75. As an 11-year-old kid, I'm excited. I'm thrilled. And my mom did say, but we have a big surprise coming up for you. Well, the surprise was this. My Aunt Patty from Jersey City comes out to watch us. My parents go to <laughs> Disney World without me. No, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, I'm, 
how old were you? Ten? Eleven. Wait, wait, wait. And your parents left you home while they (laughs) went to Disney World? I swear it's the best family story we had to, to this day. I'll tell the story. People say, no way. And my mother, God, she's still going strong in 85. She just shakes her head. She goes, well, we wanted to check it out for you first. Unbelievable. Isn't that, it unbelievable? That's the most insane thing I've ever heard. What's the point of even going to Disney World without a kid? Well, they, they have another, another couple went, and they brought That's all, too. My mother got a new camera, and here's a picture of my father. There's another picture of my father two yards further away. There's a picture of my father four yards away. Oh, boy. She was like a thousand pictures. So, oh, that, that's, anyway, that... it's a great family story. I eventually got to Disney World when I was 16, though, so they did, they did make up for it. Yeah, but, I mean, Disney World for a 16-year-old is totally different from Disney World for an 11-year-old. Totally different experience. It is. I'm 58 years old. You're crushing my heart again. I'm hoping it was was still the same, Frank. (laughs) Mark, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing that. What's the worst vacation story you have? 800-848-9222. Joanna is in Connecticut. Hello, Joanna. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you. Good. All right, worst one was uh, we went to Venezuela. My sister hates keeping anything. First of all, you get there, and there's machine guns everywhere. Dogs dying in the street. You get to your resort. Beautiful as hell. Then you come back. Like I said, my sister threw out everything. We're stuck at the airport for almost a week because my sister threw out her transfer papers. Then my dad finally got the idea of bribing us, and we got home. Otherwise, it was scary as hell. Why did you pick Venezuela to go to? My dad used to own a company, and he did um, import auto imports. And the company in Venezuela kind of wanted to meet my dad's first hands, I guess. And uh, what kind of a bribe? What kind of a bribe is necessary to get out of Venezuela? A hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. Yeah, but get this: we had a lobster dinner for seven of us. The first night, it was thirty-eight American dollars. Well, that's pretty good, actually. I mean, that's as far awesome, as bribe goes, it? that's that's what I'm prepared to bribe my uh, casino host in Atlantic City. That's not bad at all. Really? I, I I just like, Dad, why didn't you do that six days ago, you know? We <laughs> well, didn't have a hotel to stay in or anything. We're sitting there pretty much sleeping in the rental car. Was that your Terrible. only time in Venezuela? Did you go back after that? No, um, and now I wouldn't because it sounds like it's horrendous. You know? Yeah, no, I mean, that's what I was going to ask. I've heard it's gone... It's gone downhill uh, significantly. Well, I'm glad you guys survived. I'm glad you got out of there. Thanks for sharing that, Joanna. All right, good night. Thank you. 800 848 Two, two. Uh, by the way, hey, you know what I do want to um, get into? You know, we're all still here. Have you noticed that? On July 5th, there was a real danger of the world ending, ending because of this Hadron Collider. And uh, so far, so far, we're still here. But that is not stopping. Oh, there's a fly loose in the studio. And it's one of these small flies. I don't know if he's a mosquito or just a regular fly. But he's, right, he's on the microphone right now, so I can't – here, let me – I think I got him. But now whoever uses this microphone after me has to now speak through a dead bug. So there you go. He's uh, he's there. All right. Um, what I was going to say, 800-848-9222. So there are all these conspiracy theories about the Hadron Collider being fired up again on July 5th, which was Tuesday. We talked about it at the time. And there's all these TikTok theorists that are obsessed with this subject of the 
the uh, Hadron Collider, which is being run by the European Organization for Nuclear Research, or CERN. And Stranger Things is a show on Netflix. I have not seen it, but it's very popular. It's breaking streaming records on Netflix. So CERN switched on this Hadron Collider Tuesday after a three-year hiatus of maintenance and upgrades. And they're running it continuously for the next four years at record energy levels to further study particles with the hope of learning more about how the universe was formed. However, some people are pretty concerned that making scientific discoveries in the 16.8-mile-long collider has opened a portal to an alternative universe or even a gateway to hell. So a lot of TikTokers are going to town with all sorts of wild theories about new discoveries regarding this collider. This is um, one TikTok user. Her I don't know her name, but her her username is R-X-Z-E-S-X-O. She cl- theorized that now is the time to manifest your future. Um, so we'll see what... You know what that means. But these are some of the conspiracy theories that are going on in the world of TikTok as relates to this Hadron Collider. Okay, so I think it's season three of this that makes the first appearance in Stranger Things. There's this machine that the Russians are using to open up a portal. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want to spoil nothing for anybody else who hasn't seen it. Okay, does that not look just like this Hadron Collider that CERN made? So that machine basically just smashes particles, and from smashing particles, they found this thing called the Higgs boson, which is the god particle. And um, this theory that was made by Peter, this physicist, the Scottish physicist, he basically made this theory that it's the physical proof of an invisible universe-wide field that gave mass to all matter right after the Big Bang. So it's basically an invisible force that gives every every other particle in the universe its mass. So without the Higgs boson particle, without the God particle, nothing would have mass in the universe. So a lot of people are very concerned about this. Some people think it's a real-life Stranger Things plot line. Others think everybody needs to just chill out a little bit. I'm sort of in between. I could see it being terrible, but uh, I could see it also being pretty good. 800-848-9222. If you have a story about uh, the worst thing to happen to you on vacation, tell me what it was. 800-848-9222. Peter is in Spark Hill, New York. Hello, Peter. Yeah, hi. I have a, a vacation story that was a horror show from many years ago. Uh, we carpooled down to, with my in-laws down to Florida, and uh, we were staying there for about two weeks. We were attending a wedding down in Florida. And what happened was that I was sleeping in a guest room on the floor in a on a inflatable mattress, and after about a week, my back just couldn't take it anymore. And uh, we had I my wife had agreed that we'd leave two days after the wedding. I was under the understanding we were leaving the day after the wedding. And there, then there was a big argument and uh, over when we were leaving. But I, I my back was just so much in pain from sleeping on that mattress that I ended up leaving my mother-in-law. And my father-in-law down in Florida, I just drove home and said, get your own way home. Oh, boy. Yeah, something I totally regretted. I got home. I got a good night's sleep. And then I woke up and I'm like, what did I do? You know, and that was probably the worst thing I ever did in my life. And it was it was just it ended up it ruined a nice vacation. How did um, how did your in-laws and your wife react after that? 
Well, my wife drove with me. She left with me, uh, and she regretted it. And uh, but she understood. She was in a lot of pain too. Mm-hmm. But uh, my my father-in-law said to me, he goes, he goes, he goes. I kind of feel, felt that when you, once you got a good night's sleep, you would regret it. My mother-in-law just she was she forgave me, but you could tell she was a little. She was more than just annoyed. It's water under the bridge now. It's many years later, but that was a low point in my life. I mean, I mean, your back pain will drive you nuts, you know, and I never thought that. I, like I said, I had very little sleep because of the back pain. And once I got that good night's sleep, I woke up and I was just like, my God, what did I do? Mm. Oh, that is a rough one, Peter. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that. I'm glad. Uh, I hope you're feeling better now. 800 Hey, you know what we'll do? Let's do the $1,000 minute next. We're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000 if you can be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. If you are the seventh caller, then you're going to have to answer uh, 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that then you will be $1,000 richer. We had a fellow that was pretty close yesterday. Hopefully we can do even better today. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Go ahead and call 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight proudly presents breaking news. All right, before we get to the $1,000 minute, uh, the BBC is reporting that uh, Boris Johnson is going to be resigning as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom today after his own government has seen mass resignation. So he is expected to uh, issue a statement today, but the BBC is reporting that today Boris Johnson will resign. So that's interesting. There are a number of contenders for who will take over for him. If this resignation does indeed go forward, we will see. Uh, As of yesterday, as recently as yesterday, he was saying he wasn't going to resign because his leadership was needed on the world stage when it comes to the crisis in Ukraine. So uh, we will see what happens. It's going to be very interesting. We'll have an update on this Tomorrow. Uh, but in the meantime, it is time for one lucky winner to uh, win, one lucky listener to win some money. It's time for. The Other Side of Midnight presents. It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, and let's meet today's contestant, Joanna in Stanford. Hello, Joanna. Hi. All right, Joanna. Uh, so um, you you know the rules, right? You got to answer ten questions in sixty seconds. Yeah, I listened enough. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. We'll make it uh, short and sweet. All right. Name a pizza topping. Pepperoni. How many dwarves did Snow White hang out with? Seven. How, how, what, sorry? Seven. What animal is associated with a rising stop? I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, Moscow? Who did Barack Obama defeat in the 2008 presidential election? Oh, good. Um, um, Bush? No. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. It was uh, John McCain. He beat John McCain. Joanna, I'm going to put you on. Sorry. 
How many did I get? Five? You got uh, you got four. Four. Oh, okay. All right. So you All got right. up to the fifth question. I'm going to put you on hold and uh, give Avery your information. We will send you a uh, consolation prize. And, uh, you know, hopefully maybe we have a John McCain-themed biography or something that we can give you to read that uh, will help jog your recollection the next time you're in a similar position. But, yes, it was uh, Obama who defeated McCain in uh, 2008. Uh, Bush also defeated McCain in the primaries, but that was back in 2000. All right, uh, we're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade in uh, just a moment. Uh, Howard in Babylon's been waiting a while. Hello, Howard. Hi there, Frank. Hey, Howard, what's on your mind? I wanted to discuss outer space as it relates to dimensionality, dimensions themselves. Okay, so discuss it. Um, I believe there's an infinite number of dimensions of which we occupy the third. All right, so, uh, you know, for people that, that aren't up on this whole thing, Howard, what does that mean? If they're, we're in the third dimension, what does that mean exactly? Well, length, width, height over time is what we're in now. It could be infinite. It, it could be places so strange nobody would believe they existed. Well, I, I was always a big fan of that show, Sliders, which is um, which deals with that whole theory. So, uh, hey, you know, you might be right, Howard. I certainly don't know. Somebody who may know is uh, the hardest working guy in media. We're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. There is nobody that has more of an impact on how the world consumes news than Brian Kilmeade. And I don't think there's anybody that works harder uh, than Brian Kilmeade. He must have an extra four or five hours in his day because uh, how he's able to accomplish what he's able to accomplish is beyond me. Uh, Brian Kilmeade is a New York Times bestselling author, the co-host of Fox and Friends on Fox News, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host heard on WABC every morning from uh, 10 a.m. to noon and now hosts a new show on uh, the weekend, One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Brian, are you you a vacation guy at all? Are you planning a summer vacation to recharge your batteries or anything like that? Not right now. I mean, I'll take a couple of days here, a couple of days there. Uh, But it's with my family right now, at the ages there are, it's hard to get everybody together. So I'm not uh, two weeks. I'll see you in two weeks. Um, (laughs) Last time I did that... um, I end up you end up coming back early. There's uh, invariably something happens in our in our world. So uh, right now I have no uh, plans for that. And when the girls start playing college soccer, uh, I'm going to keep my whole fall relatively open. So I'm going to have to take a day here and there. Uh, how how close are they to playing college soccer? They are. They're both playing. One's a one's a senior this year, and the other one is going to be a sophomore. Uh, that's tremendous. Um, Congratulations! Yeah, so and you, upstate New York. You, you were a college soccer player, right? Yeah, I played over at Post, Long Island University, Division Two, average at best, but uh, played really <laughs> since I was five. Well, no, that's tremendous. I even saw a, a photograph on Twitter of uh, your new dog, Willow, with a soccer <laughs> ball. Uh, so what kind of dog is Willow? She's a, a, a puppy now, right? But what kind of dog is she? Yeah, uh, 14 weeks, Great Pyrenees. And, you know, we have two others. One's deaf, one's got bad knees, and we just thought... 
we had an opportunity to get this other one, and it's already being woven in pretty effectively. We'll see if we can get through the puppy stage before the girls go back to school. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to have a puppy in the house. <laughs> yeah, well, I can imagine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we broke the news right before you came on, Brian, that uh, it looks like the BBC is reporting anyway, that uh, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is going to announce his resignation today. Now, what's interesting to me is Boris Johnson sort of came on the stage um, at a time when it seemed like all the world was moving towards populists, you know, in whether it's uh, left-wing populist, right-wing populist, or even some might call Macron kind of a centrist populist. It seems like folks around the world where they get to vote are, were rejecting everything that the establishment was uh, was putting forward for the last 20, 30 years. Now that it looks like Johnson is off the world stage, what do you think that portends for the future of the world populist movement, if anything? Well, a couple of things. Is he officially gone yet? I mean, it, I mean, he's in trouble. He lost two more aids. But this is all self-inflicted. Mm. It's not as if they looked at his policies and said, well, you know, we just think the taxes are too high and, you know, um, he's more into rallies than actual work. If this guy is out, it is this guy's having parties while he shut down his whole country, then denied he's had it, then pictures emerge of him drinking at a party. Then he says, well, you know, I was upstairs studying while they were partying uh, at the presidential house. So he's upstairs, the prime minister's house, and then he's upstairs like, yeah, I really have anything to do with it. Then pictures emerge of him uh, drinking. He's like, all right, I apologize. Well, then he goes and strong arms some uh, serial harasser uh, into a position, and the guy's harassing women again in his cabinet. So he has two key cabinet ministers resign. He also has brother resign. So, I mean, this is a guy that there's really even no heir apparent. You know, I'm not uh, – I can't bring you inside the U.K., but there's usually somebody waiting in the wings that you kind of hear about, the mayor of London or somebody that seems to have a lot of charisma, the Dave Cameron followed uh, Tony Blair. And in between, um, you know, there was um, there was uh, Teresa, and I forgot her last name, but she May, was the kind of— May. Yeah, Teresa May, and she was kind of the, okay, she was next, not much charisma, but she's she's been there. Who's next after Boris? Yeah, Johnson. well, it's a great question, and I, as you said, I don't think there is a uh, a uh, an heir apparent. I, I know, um, you know, Nigel Farage, who's sort of been one of the conservative critics of Boris Johnson, he, a regular on uh, on Fox News, certainly. He has said that uh, this whole episode with Boris Johnson has made uh, the British government a, a, an international laughing stock. Do you think that's the case? A little bit. I mean, no doubt you need leadership, and they've been great on the war in Ukraine. Uh, he's been aggressive. He, uh, I think he's been a good friend to the U.S. I mean, he kind of turned on Trump at the end. But, you know, Trump was about to give him a U.K.-U.S. Uh, trade agreement, but this and this current president is not. So, you know, I, I think in a way he has been. Number one is the way he holds himself. He's out there and he's flamboyant. And you look at these stories – and I do watch a lot of the BBC, Frank, at the hours we have. Right, it, exactly. it really comes in handy oh, no, because no, you know, no. they're covering the world events and they're covering the U.S. pretty effectively. So and I do see the. I mean, the, the stories they have don't even have an other side. The guy comes out, he does everything I just mentioned, and then he's like, "Well, all right, you got me, but you don't want to lose me, do you?" Right. I mean, that's pretty much. It, it worked for Gavin Newsom, I guess, right, and a couple yeah, I mean, of others. But, yeah, Gavin Newsom's another one. I mean, I think it's unbelievable that this guy's taking out ads in Florida. Uh, this guy is uh, trolling Governor DeSantis, says, please come to California, when he blew the best, maybe the the state with the most to offer in the country. 
And he he made high taxes, made homeless a priority. He shut everybody down uh, horrifically. He uh, starved small business owners indifferently. He got his his families go to a private school in person while he shut down every public school. Gets caused at the French Laundry. Uh, eating out to dinner when he banned everything else and hurt small business. Then he gets caught at a Laker game. Everyone's got to wear a mask. If you're going to go out, he's taking pictures of Magic Johnson. They post it on social media. He's got no mask on. Then he tells everybody, you better not go to these 22 states because they don't have good LGBTQT whatever rights. And he's caught fishing in Montana. That's one of the places he told everyone. Right, in right. It's one of the states banned. that's banned. It's it's really it's laughable. But uh, you know, again, it may not work for uh, Boris, but at least it's working for for Gavin Newsom for whatever it's worth. Hey, uh, one of the sad stories that uh, obviously you've been covering a great deal uh, was the Highland Park shooting on uh, on July fourth. This uh, disturbed twenty uh, two year old uh, young man. Um, had been posting all these disturbing videos on social media, essentially looking like uh, very much living out a fantasy of committing a school shooting. And now um, his father, who ran for mayor of Highland Park before, has come out and said that he feels bad, but this is not his fault. A two-part question on this, Brian. One, some people are using this episode as uh, another call for social media companies to have greater regulation of what what gets posted on there. And a lot of people are saying that the father is at least somewhat culpable here. What's your take on both? I, I, you know what, for our, you know, we are subjected to what we know, but from what I know, and the parent says, I'm proudly going to walk down the street. I lived here my whole life. I don't plan on going anywhere. He gets a, the R. Kelly uh, lawyer that's going to defend him. He says, I hope my son gets a long sentence, but I'll appear at all his court appearances. He had no signs of this or little signs of this. Really? They took about a dozen different knives and machetes, a dagger out of your house. You signed off on a gun for him. He said he was only going to use it as target practice when you know it. Two separate incidents, minimum that we know about. He's shown violence and threatened to wipe out the family. I mean, to me, this guy, if there's ever a parent culpable, he better be willing. You know, maybe there's another side to the story. I, his defense is arrogance. And the fact is, yeah, me and my son were talking Monday about this Danish shooter, how he's really bad for gun rights when you have these mass shootings going on in Denmark. And the next thing you know, he's one of the mass shooters. Oh, well, you signed off on his gun license to allow him to get all these firearms. You see what he's obsessing. Look at some of his online things. He's building these little houses. Right. In his, he's no, it's, little it's house really in his disturbing. Backyard. It's incredibly disturbing. I, I really think his, his dad, if you're ever going to charge a parent, I think this guy is the guy. Uh, It really, I mean, you talk about an abdication of responsibility as a parent. It's difficult to see how it gets worse than this. Uh, I know a lot of folks uh, did spend a lot of time over the 4th of July holiday uh, when they needed to cool off or if they were in areas where there was rain, catching up on the Fox Nation special, What Made America Great?, And uh, these really are terrific specials, and I really hadn't seen them prior to last week. But you get into the history of oil. You get into the history of the car. One of the things that I found really fascinating was when you took a trip to Los Angeles, you did something on the history of Hollywood. Now, a lot of people that like celebrating America, these days they really like coming down on Hollywood. So maybe it's easy for people to forget how integral Hollywood was into the building up 
of uh, the American culture and the American myth. For people that haven't seen uh, this uh, Fox Nation special, why was Hollywood so integral to making America great? I mean, it's marketing. Number one, people want to be entertained. And the way we have it, Thomas Edison invents uh, film. And everybody that was trying to do their own films after he has this technology, he was suing them. He's like, I am the guy. I, I invented it. I'll make all the movies. So they literally went across the country to get away from Thomas Edison. And they end up in California. And I go to the Hollywood sign. I start there. And you just see how they pick out this um, Century City property. And then uh, William Fox ends up picking it out and and bringing uh, movies to another level. And instead, just like you, the Yankees might be signing free agents, they were signing the biggest and best uh, singers and actors. And 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 nobody's done more than Shirley Temple to move Fox forward. They sign her up, even though she's I think nine, ten years old, or seven, eight, nine years old. And you really see it was treated like royalty, but they weren't getting involved in politics. You know, for when this all started, they were looking to entertain and everybody wanted a part of it. So if you're looking to sell America, you sell movies. We do it better than anybody else. So when you're in a small town in France or a big city in Germany, you go, what is this about America? You look in Central and South America as they're struggling for the basic needs. And you finally get a film. You look up, you go, wow, this has got to be something special about America. And that began the sales, the effective sales, not only our history, but we're producing. We still lead the world. So I just thought that would be important. History of the car, obviously, not only does it make our lives better, it, may, it allows us to travel, to see what Henry Ford did. We had a chance, Frank, to go electric or gas. We had the same technology at the same exact time. We won gas. And we just left the, the electric vehicle behind until now. So I'd be able to go to the Ford Museum and see what this guy mm. did with uh, Pure Force. His mentor was Thomas Edison. You know, it's just amazing what what it was like in America back then. It is pretty much that pioneer spirit that brought us from east to west. It's the same thing that brought us to global fame and effectiveness. And to see everybody turn it all over for the war. Okay, I'm, I'm building cars. Uh, excuse me, there's a war. Okay, why don't you take over my, um, you know, Ford would say, why don't you take over my factories? I'll make whatever you can. Just give me a, a, a government contract. And when it's done... He has this brand-new facility, and now an XTNO met to be able to mass-produce and give cars. So when the world looks around and says, we've got the best movies, we've got the best technology, we've got the best business people, and now we've got the best vehicle uh, mode of transportation, the best airlines, this didn't happen by mistake. This is the American spirit. So I did, I've done 44 of these. But this is uh, between the history of oil and gas, between the history of Hollywood, the history of automobile, the history of law enforcement. You realize what we've done because there was no real law enforcement around the country. Mm -hmm. Hey, you'll be like, you and I, Frank, would have a tough time doing it. But most people, if they're nine to fivers, would say, hey, guys, uh, one of us has got to be a cop tonight. And you would you would just patrol for free. It was volunteer. And then when things started coming, the country starts filling up. Uh, FDR, they, uh, people, uh, for example, in New York, everyone had to be Irish if you wanted to be a cop, just like the stereotype. And the cops were getting paid off. They were drinking on the job. No one had any certain shifts. Uh, the jails were just raucous party areas. And everyone had different types of guns. No one had uniforms. Immigrants were treated terribly. In comes Teddy Roosevelt, set up a structure, set up a uniform, set up shifts. He would patrol the patrol at night. Uh, he would organize and put them through an academy. And I'm able to just to see how law 
enforcement got its roots. Mm. So I just thought these are poor Absolutely. America's no, past. That's great, and it's available on Fox Nation if people haven't seen that uh, seen that yet. Hey, uh, it's looking more and more like President Trump is going to announce a next run for the presidency. Could even happen before the midterm elections. Um, what's your prediction? Do you think he does make this run, and do you think he announces before the midterms? Well, I talked to, you know, I would yesterday, if you asked me that question, I would say, yeah. But I just talked to someone who was in contact with him within the last 48 hours. And they told him uh, there's a part of him that he kind of wants to run, but there's too many things up in the air right now. So it doesn't look like from what he told me, and this guy knows President Trump as well as anybody, he he has not. He, he, there's too many things going on, and hmm. whether they meant Georgia, whether they meant the one six committee, whether it's something in his private business, whether it's the New York AG and the testimony that's coming straight his way, I'm not sure. But I mean, he liked to run. But if you see what Governor DeSantis is doing now, I don't know if DeSantis gets in if Trump doesn't. But he is certainly looking like a candidate, even though he's not going to Iowa. The money he's raising, the the education, he's now setting up a fund. The school board candidates. Conservative yeah. school boards. I mean, think about that. You don't do that if you just want to be governor of Florida. Yeah, this is true. Uh, Brian, what's coming up on TV and radio today for you? Well, um, we're going to look at the recall on Gascon on TV, so we're going to kind of leave with that. It looks like they have enough signatures to do it. Amongst our guests, we have Betsy DeVos, got a brand new book out. We're going to talk about education with her. Uh, Mark Thiessen's going to be live. I'm going to do a simulcast on the Harris Faulkner show. You'll see on TV and radio, get a chance to see what uh, the studio looks like. And Margaret Cleveland wrote the most uh, most important column anyone, any conservative will read about the 1-6 committee, hmm. what the Republicans really should take out of this, that it isn't necessarily cheating, but focus on what governors did to trump their legislation, talk about the, what happened with the mail-in voting with the Zuck Bucks and how they flipped districts on Trump, uh, the consolidation and the hiding of the Hunter Biden story and other major storylines to stop Trump. That's what happened in the last election, and that's what Trump should be saying. So for Republicans to say, I don't want to hear about the January 6th committee, you do want to hear about what happened in 2020, but you don't want to keep saying over and over again these these uh, stories that cannot be verified about what happened in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. Well, sounds like a couple of action-packed shows. Brian Kilmeade, it's always a treat to talk with you. Thank you. Uh, back at you, Frank. Best show. Thank you. you. Best show going. Keep it going. I appreciate that. Check Brian out at uh, 6 a.m. on uh, Fox and Friends. Obviously, keep it right here on uh, the other side of midnight and on uh, 770 a.m. because uh, you're going to want to listen to our boss, John Katsimatidis, as he's in with Bernard McGurk on the Bernie and Sid Show from 6 to 10. And uh, one of their special guests will be Bill O'Reilly. That is the highest rated segment of the entire week. So you're not going to want to miss that. We'll do 15 seconds of fame next. If you want to be heard, go ahead and call us, 800-848-9222. Say whatever you like for 15 seconds. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Go down and your dreams go wrong. Be 
need a place to hide If the days are long When the sun goes down You might need a place to call your own Somewhere out there on the other side of me This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, time now for you to be heard at uh, 800-848-9222 for 15 seconds. Time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Eddie in Nassau County. Yes, the two-faced Democrats obviously have to eat their own poop with the two simple words, prove it. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, I truly wish that Boris Johnson does not resign because we need conservative voices out there in the North Atlantic that can help us out. And finally, Tiago in Newark. Read Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN, CNN.com. I'll see you tomorrow at 1 a.m. for Ask Frank Anything. Frank Morano, good day.